This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. So what day? Mihi nomen est Stella et hoc est Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 173, BGSU Batman Conference 2019 for April MMXIX. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by... Hello there, this is Jared Albrick, a.k.a. The Yard Sale Artist, with a quick podcast promo for my show, Comics with Normies. Here's how the show works. Using my yard sailing skills, I acquire a random comic book from a yard sale. I then give said random comic to a normie. A normie being a person who doesn't normally read comic books. Then, on the show, I'll sit down with the normie to discuss the issue. Get a real outsider's point of view and see what some of the comics that we love and maybe not love so much seem like to those normal folks we see walking around on the streets each day. It should be a fun perspective and good for a few laughs. You can check out the Comics with Normies podcast along with some other fun-filled podcasts from White Rocket Entertainment on iTunes and at whiterocket.podbean.com. And feel free to join the show using Twitter handle at Normies Podcast or on Facebook at Comics with Normies. Once again, you can find Comics with Normies on iTunes and at whiterocket.podbean.com. We'll see you there. Becker the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, this is going to be a special episode, as you can tell. Over the weekend of April 12th through 13th, I was at Bowling Green State University for 
their Batman conference that was put on by the pop culture department there at BGSU. And I presented a paper there, and I was with Donovan Morgan Grant and Joshua Lappin Bertoni and Carolyn Coca, as well as other both academics and non academics. And it was it was a fun time. And so this episode is going to basically detail what went on in that weekend. And if you've listened to any of my San Diego Comic-Con recap episodes, you know that I give almost a travelogue of both the zany and non-zany things that have happened. And it's almost like my diary, things that have happened. And of course, you can expect some music that has more of a personal connection or inside joking connection and so those will be popping up as interludes between the days but just to give you a sense of how this even came about I think it was in the summer and someone and I'm trying to think about who it was but it was either Carolyn or Shag that sent me a little blurb that BGSU is doing this Batman conference and they were calling for papers and presentations to be presented at the conference and they just needed an abstract and so of course I sent it to my buddies actually I don't know that it ah I can't remember who sent it to me first or if I accidentally found it but I feel like someone sent it to me and then I sent it to the, the people that I felt like really needed to be involved and I think right after like immediately sending that text to Josh and, and Don, I remember Josh did it, I think his sending his abstract that day, which was insane. And, and Donovan was interested in it. Mine was a little harder because I, of course, wouldn't do it on Batman. I think at about this time, I was also starting to get followed by the BGSU Batman conference Twitter account. And... I got a little nudge from then on, we absolutely want papers on people that are in his cast. And so I thought, okay, so I can definitely do it on Barbara, but what to do? And I was scratching my head because, you know, a lot of things have been <laughs> done with what I didn't want to do. I didn't necessarily want to do like a, a journey or, you know, just pick her and, and one character and, and trace that. And, you know, Oracle has been done before. And I was trying to just think of something that, would be my strength and and a different twist on you know an old tale to a certain extent so trying to figure it out trying to figure it out and then I thought what about a classical lens to it so of course you know a classics major and teach Latin so thinking epics epic poetry epic hero so I decided to make Barbara Gordon my epic hero and look at her journey, but look at the people that she meets along the way on her journey. Specifically the men, right? Because she's in a boys club. And with ancient epics, you, of course, your hero is going to be a male. And as the man is, is traveling around, he encounters these different women on his journey. But the female characters in ancient epics, are, they have pretty superficial character characteristics, or they are, you know, their characters are superficial. In in ancient Greek epics, you really fell into one of two categories. You had the, the goddess seductress or the, the long-suffering wife slash weaver. But I wanted something more for her, for, for Barbara, and I think we saw that. So, but, you know, with these, sorry, I should say that 
even though you fell into one of those two categories, the women that, you know, Odysseus and Aeneas and, and others met irrevocably, you know, changed them or changed them somehow. It's not like he just ran up against him and that was it. So I thought that's absolutely what's happened with Barbara. She's been surrounded by all these men. How have they impacted her? So that's what I decided to do. And I read a couple books, of course, about, uh, I, I told Carolyn, or I think maybe I sent my abstract to Carolyn, and she gave me some ideas for research books to read, uh, people who had actually written things on heroin's journey. One of them, I would say, is not, a, well, she's got some interesting ideas, heroin's journey by Maureen Murdoch. I've got some some issues with it and it was coming from a therapist's perspective so it's more like breaking out of this mold that you've almost put yourself in and what causes you to go to the different paths of the the heroine's journey and then i did read another one girl from girl to goddess which i can't remember her author now but that was interesting because it went through all these different myths and and how the the females were represented in those particular myths and I chose I think I may have had like nine characters because you'll hear my presentation later on but I had my seven of course and then I was thinking oh what about Tim what about James Gordon Jr. what about Ted Cord and I ended up good thing I didn't do 10 because seven I was already over time but it turned out to be a really fun journey, and thank goodness I started in January because I was spending a couple hours on each character, and maybe every two weeks or so I did a, a character, and I was finished maybe in March or so, and it was 18 pages. 18 pages, it was raw because I hadn't done any grammatical or anything at it, so I was just putting it down there. I sent it to Carolyn first, so I do apologize, Carolyn, for all those grammar or spelling mistakes that I may have made, which hopefully, I mean, I feel like, you know, I understand the English language and, and I'm a decent writer, so hopefully there weren't too many. And of course, her first comment is like, this is entirely too long because, you know, we only have 15 minutes for this this presentation. So she helped me cut it down. I think maybe it got to 14. I don't know. She helped me a great deal. I sent it then to my nemesis at my workplace, my my fake nemesis. Remember, people, that if I say nemesis, then uh, I'm just kidding. But it's it's fun to have nemesis at work. I have about five there. And she I wanted her perspective because she doesn't really know comics. I mean, she I've given her some graphic novels, but... I wanted her sort of layman perspective and, hey, does this make sense to you? And also she teaches the Odyssey so she would understand that. So she helped me with that. And so I'm very thankful to Ash White on that or in that regard. And also her, her biggest comment, I think, was helping with tenses because I was trying to figure out, gosh, do I do was or is? Because I was kind of going back and forth was, you know, with the epics and, and Babs in the past and then is if it was current stuff and she's like just keep it is because if it's true then it's always true because when you open it up it's saying the same thing and sent it finally I think to I maybe I got it down a couple more pages and then sent it to Tom and he of course would have the English perspective as well as knowing you know a little bit about 
Barbara and he was able to excise and, and really help me out. And so I was getting it down, you know, I think maybe 10, 11. And then I just, just decided, gosh, I really just have to get rid of exposition. I have to assume that the audience knows at least a little bit about these particular characters, some more than others, of course, but I just, you know, I'll assume their knowledge. And I'm already assuming a lot about classics. Like I already knew that they were going to be a little befuddled when I got to the classic angle anyway. So I got it down to, I think, nine and like a little bit on 10. And in my practices, I got to 16 and a half. So that was about where I was when the day came. So that's just leading up to it. I, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was also some of the things were hard because I was trying to match up the man with a female ancient epic character or some sort of classical reference and a lot of them a lot of them came easily uh, a couple of them changed a couple times or or I got into it but it was really nice to have this meld between two loves you know classics and Batgirl and I was glad to be able to do that so that's just to give you a sense so I'm going to start now, my diary, my, my travel log with Thursday. Well, we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. And we know what we're knowing, but we can't say what we've seen. And we're not little children, and we know what we Give us time. 
So Thursday, April 11th, it was travel day. I had a packed schedule at school. I don't know if I've talked about my year's schedule this year, but I have six classes this year. Still three preps, even though it's kind of like three and a half because, well, I won't get into it, but six classes is the most I've ever had. And unfortunately, the way the schedule fell, two days of the week, I have all six classes with only a lunch break, which it's, I am wiped out afterwards. And then two of the other days, I have the morning off to prep and stuff. And I'm a really good planner. I won't get into how I plan and everything. But it sometimes turns out that I have nothing to do in the morning sometimes because I have already planned and I'm ready to go. And so it's just a terrible schedule in the fact that I'm overworked two days and then I am underworked <laughs> and am like trying to figure out what to do two other days. So I've actually used some of those underwork days to edit podcasts and it's been lovely. But Thursday was one of those six class days. Friday just so happened that I didn't have any classes because they switched the schedules and it was going to be a Monday schedule for the middle school because I teach middle school and high school. So I didn't have to lose one of my personal days or anything. So I just called for a sub for my last half. So I taught my two high school classes, AP and Latin 2, and then took off during lunch. So I'm deciding to drive to Ohio instead of flying, just so I have my car and everything. I think it's just easier. And I'm not, you know, so down on driving, you know, driving's fun. If it gets to be really, really long, then it's a bit of a drag. But it's going to take me eight hours to get to Ohio. And on the way, I've been communicating with Alan Middleton, Professor Cheapskate or Prof Prof, depending on how you like to think of him. And so I'm going to stop at his place and have dinner with his family and then continue on. So I have six hours to get there. My only companion is a, an audiobook, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, which was an interesting companion. It reminds me a little bit of an American tragedy because the guy's the guy commits a murder and he's an idiot about it and somehow gets away with it. But I have yet to finish it. I'm still working on it. So driving without incident, which is always the best that you can really say in a drive and it was sunny and delightful and which means I could use my cruise control and just be alert to drivers but not alert to weather stopped at uh, the, the professor's house I saw all his secret stacks of comics that he hides from his wife which is very interesting um, it's it's fun to hear yeah relationships and and just you know is the the partner an enabler or is the partner just allowing of this you know begrudgingly or not or willingly but uh mrs professor <laughs> quarter bin or however she mrs cheapskate i'll call her is uh she's a very lovely person and i think she lovingly allows uh these stacks to pop up at different places and we went to barbecue and then uh, uh em squared middleton came and delightful conversation of course and then i traveled on and got to the hotel at BGSU at around 10, just had a couple minutes to breathe. And then I went and knocked on my guys's uh, hotel room door and who should appear while answering but spoiler kid. Yes, thanks for the spoiler. He was there. I wanted to run out of the hotel kicking and screaming, but it didn't happen. So I went in and, and chatted with them a little bit. Josh 
this is a little bit of an annoying thing about between the three of us. I usually am the most prepared. Josh says I'm overprepared. And I'm also like the sort of nagging mother figure. So if you're doing something that I think maybe you shouldn't do, I'll I'll tell you about that. If you drop a chocolate muffin on the ground, I'll tell you to pick it up and say, you know, if you're planning on walking away. So I, I guess you could call me a nagging mother or a nagging teacher. Who knows? But Josh had yet to complete his presentation and Don was still working on it. But the thing with Don was I think the day of or the day before He said he had a hundred slides. I'm not joking here. A hundred slides. And his presentation was, he he could do it in five minutes. And I just kept repeating it in in the text, five minutes, five minutes. Whereas I've got, you know, I did a little presentation. I don't, that that was just to have images up on the board. But, you know, mine is over mine 16 and a half I'm trying to I'm struggling to cut it down it made me sick so he I kept saying that to him and I said it to him in his face but it was it was great to see those two again I stayed I guess until gosh might have been 11 or 11 30 or something I think that might have been when it was and just because I felt like we all needed our sleep because the next day was the big day. So I ended up saying goodbye to them and went, went to my room, went to sleep. And that's where we come to the big day Friday. Shining, I can't avoid the lightning. Oh, where did the blue sky? 
So Friday, I wanted to, Friday and Saturday, I wanted to run around campus and f- Friday I woke up, which was funny because I, I, we asked, Don and I asked, you know, when, when, when should we meet for breakfast and everything? And, and Josh is saying 7.30. I thought, oh my gosh, I thought maybe we we're going to sleep in, but he wanted to get to opening remarks and I guess I was just ready to not go to any panel and just wait for mine to appear, but opening remarks, I think. We're at 8.40, so 7.30 it is. So I ended up waking up at 5.45, ran about three miles or so. I ran in town, which was lovely. I mean, the c- college is the town, I would say. But it's, it's It also has a small town feel. Came back, had breakfast, and then we went over. And what was interesting is, uh, and unfortunate, is that my run was pleasant. It was actually a little balmy, which was weird because when I, on Thursday evening it got rather chilly, but it was in like 60s, I guess was preparing for the storm that arrived. So it was raining. It was really raining hard. And I dressed up. Uh, my guys actually wore belts and, you know, they were I guess semi business business casual and we got rather wet we parked near the library but we went around the wrong way to get into the entrance of the library so (laughs) I think Don said that we were comically wet because of how wet we were I had on a rain jacket but I also had a dress like the bottom what was not covered by my rain jacket was wet basically the bottom half of my and it was for several presentations I'm like trying to air it out and my I wore sandals because I forgot my flats so those were soaked as well I ended up just being barefoot in the (laughs) Donovan at one point said I didn't know you were going all aerial because he was wondering (laughs) why my shoes were randomly there but I had to dry them out so we were wet we entered into the library was all set up and had you know batman paraphernalia around it and then we turned the corner and there is chuck coletta and once he introduced or we introduced ourselves to him he knew us immediately which was you know a lot of fun he's like oh you know i've been following you guys and of course knowing the podcasts and yeah he was just super excited so we sat down and the intro remarks and then we started getting into the different panels. So I'll tell you about the panels that, or I'll at least mention, I guess, the panels that I went to. So the first one I went to was the historical aspects of Batman. And that had three different people. So that's what these panels were. Besides the keynote speakers, there were 
there was more than one person on each panel and then afterwards they would each have 15 minutes afterwards there would be time for questions so there was how to horrify batman by sam cowling and he was sort of talking about the psychology of batman robin everyone loves the drake podcast slash rob's rogues youtube channel by rob myers who of course is on the batman universe feed and he was talking about a little bit about the history of Tim Drake, and then the evolution of the Welton Shong of a Batman Epicurean through his fictions by Shipra Tolia. And that one was a little bit harder just because I think she brought her whole thesis and she didn't have time to read her whole thesis. So she was cutting along the way. And she's also, um, she had an accent. So like you really had to focus on what she, and you guys know, I think what I think about accents, or perhaps I haven't talked about that yet, but number one, I love them. But number two, I think it's amazing because you really have to get close to that person. And I think in their space, it's a very intimate connection because you, you have to like drop, you know, your American ideas of just like, you know, not really paying attention to someone and actually pay attention to someone and listen to them and focus on them. And so I like those sorts of challenges in life. And so I was really focusing on her. But some of the things were hard to understand. So I wish I could hear that again or read her paper so I could better understand that. And then we had our keynote speaker, Dr. Jenny Swartz Levine. And what's funny is I sometimes, I'm more of an introvert, I'm starting to find out, so I can, I'll be fine just hanging out, you know, with my guys. But Shag had told me, once I told him I was going to this, he said, oh, you should look up Dr. Jenny Swartz-Levine because she's going to be on the Blah 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 podcast. It's really Blah Blah Ha Ha. And I said, okay, okay. So there she was. So I ended up going up to her and I said, hello, we know someone. And then I said Shag. And so, you know, it's it's funny because we all rag on Shag and everything. But I did tell I did tell her that Shag is a dear friend and that she'll she's absolutely going to love the Blah Ha Ha podcast. I actually pronounced it correctly this time. And so that was a lot of fun. And then another person who, with whom I've been connecting on the social media is Nancy Northcott. I was walking around and I thought, oh, I think that might be her. So I introduced myself to her as well. So you, I think, rub shoulders with different people and, and you make yourself, you sort of change, you put on a different personality which is what I do and and I'm a bit of a chameleon so that's certainly what I did there so yeah Dr. Schwartz Levine talked about uh, she said holy bat heartbreak the long dark night of the soul and just his different relationships throughout yeah she does do like silver st cloud and just how i mean poor guy can't can't get a break and is sort of doomed to be unhappy and she talked about one of my favorites the julie madison relationship when jim was in the cowl and oh, i miss it so much and of course the the breakup of the marriage and then there was a lunch break and i we oh carolyn carolyn ended up showing up i think before the keynote speaker and so now our group turned to five because of course spoiler kid was still there and we ended up all going to the pop culture library on the on a tour and boy was that amazing just everything that they have comics they've got manga they've got postcards they've got magazines they've got novellas and and paperback novels before ISBN so that was interesting to to walk through on that but we missed our our lunch opportunity but luckily you know they they resupply food along the way in in the different rooms or in the main room I should say 
So then we're getting we're getting close here. We're getting close because I am at 210 and now we're at 1. So I basically have only one panel left until my judgment day. And at one point I did tell the guys I think I might just not go to that one, you know, the t- panel before me because I just want to sort of center my thoughts and and whoo, you know, get ready. And at this point, I just thought, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. I practiced it that morning. It was 16 and a half. I guess talk faster. Who knows? Uh, it was out of my hands, really. So the panel then I went to was Batman and Teaching, Roundtable Discussion, and it had Jeffrey Allen Brown, Jeremy Lawrence. I wonder if it's Lawrence. Lawrence, Travis Langley, and Stephen Leva. And I think one of those people, well, I know one of those people was not there, but I don't remember which one it was. And then, oh, I guess that was it. Yeah, that took up the entire hour. Just, you know, how to bring Batman or comics into the classroom. And then it was my time. And I lucked out because my panel was called Girls of Gotham, which I guess they wanted alliteration, but it should have been Women of Gotham. It felt like maybe I was placed in a romance panel, but that's not what mine was about. While there were some romantic entanglements that I talked about, it was more her her heroine's journey. So it was just kind of weird. So anyways, Bat Meets Girl adapting the Dark Knight's love life to the big screen with Brandon Bosch. And then there was supposed to be Batman and Catwoman from the first kiss to the last by or with Jordan Valdez, but he did not show up, which was actually a blessing because that means I could go over time without being disrespectful. And then we had a lot of time for questions afterwards. So here is my presentation and then the questions afterwards. You can sit right next to me if you want to. Salvete omnes. I had to start. I teach Latin, so... Had to start with some land. So hello and good afternoon. So I'm going to be talking about my gal pal, Barbara Gordon. Comics have become the modern mythology, shared across culture, age, location, and more. They explain phenomena, offer lessons, and constantly examine the tension between good and evil. In classical mythology, male epic heroes may have passing moments with women as they continue on their journey or spend a considerable amount of time with them. Odysseus and Calypso, Circe and Penelope in Homer's Odyssey, and Aeneas and Dido and Juno in Virgil's Aeneid are just a few examples. No matter the amount of time spent together, the hero leaves the encounter somewhat changed. Barbara Gordon is the lead in her own modern epic, undertaking a long journey, engaging in sometimes superhuman deeds, working with and leading others, and occasionally exhibiting a heroic flaw. She is also surrounded by many male characters, sometimes passing, sometimes enduring, as she continues on her journey. Killer Moth, Jason Bard, the Joker, Calculator, Dick Grayson, Batman, and James Gordon Sr. are just a few of these examples. How have these characters affected Barbara Gordon and her heroic journey? I'm going to examine some of these relationships, romantic, platonic, familial, or inimical, between Barbara Gordon and various male members of the Batman universe, assessing the dynamic nature of the relationships and how they have shaped her character or shifted her heroine's journey, all with a classical flair. (laughs) So let's begin with perhaps the best and most important male in Barbara Gordon's life. It's Killer Moth, of course. Before Killer Moth, a.k.a. Cameron Van Cleer, arrives on the scene, Barbara Gordon is just an unsuspecting Princess Leia hairdo librarian with a Ph.D. and a brown belt in judo. As with all heroes, there's a feeling that fate meant for her to be something more. 
While attending the policeman's masquerade ball in a back row costume, she deliberately designs to shock her father. Barbara attempts to stop Killer Moth and his Mothman larva and pupa from harming Daddy's millionaire friend, Bruce Wayne, and thus begins the first of several missions against Killer Moth. For Barbara, Killer Moth acts as the specter of Hector, Prince of Troy, which urges Aeneas to take the gods of Troy and flee in order to pursue his greater destiny of settling in Italy. Here, Killer Moth, either broadly his appearance or more specifically his defeat, urges Barbara to treat the cow as more than just a prank on her father and to pursue her fate as a heroine of Gotham. The prank, the ball, and Bruce Wayne combine to create the circumstances for the creation of Batgirl, but Killer Moth is the catalyst. He is enough of a threat to make him a true quest in Barbara's journey, but not so dangerous that it seems unrealistic that she helped to defeat him, which is exactly the challenge she needs at the beginning of her career to prove that continuing seriously on her, her heroic journey is a worthwhile and sensible choice. Now, shortly after facing off against Killer Moth and embarking on her heroic journey, Barbara encounters Jason Bard, the first love interest in her life. When we first meet Jason Bard, it's as a Vietnam War veteran who received a crippling wound which now requires walking with a cane. He studies criminology and plans to be a private investigator. Dido, Queen of Carthage, is a suitable comparison for Jason. The two are both strong and capable on their own and have a history which affects some of their actions in the present and how they each relate to the hero or heroine in their lives. Jason is a partner and encourager for both Barbara and Batgirl, as Dido is for Aeneas before her untimely demise. He breaks the male-female stereotypes established at the time and treats her as an equal. Oh my. He shows respect and admiration towards Barbara for more than her physical appearance, and seeks to be a partner with Batgirl, not her superior. As her silent partner, he defers to her in the midst of a mission or thinks of her first when he gets involved in trouble because he trusts her abilities. With Jason, the audience also sees a role reversal and perhaps better understands what Batgirl deals with on a daily basis. Batgirl underestimates Jason due to his infirmity, saying that he isn't up to this job. In that moment, Batgirl treats Jason like Batman and Robin initially treated her as someone who means well, but is incapable of completing the task at hand. Like Batgirl in her origin story, Jason is able to both disprove those initial prejudices and to use what people see as his advantage to his, as what people see as his disadvantage to his advantage, i.e. his cane and trick leg. Just like Batgirl is at times able to use her femininity to her advantage. As a partner, Jason changes the status quo and gives her someone that she can share both of her lives with, albeit separately. He shares the burden, helps find a solution to problems, and believes in her, helping instill in her the confidence needed to start a new chapter in her life as Congresswoman. After a later losing re-election to Congress, Barbara returns to crime fighting full-time, but tough missions and both internal and external wounds lead her to question her mission as Batgirl. After one final mission against Comorant, she finally gets with the cow in 1988's Batgirl Special Number 1, deciding that she can help others fight crime, but she will not be the one actively going out on missions. There have been a few characters in ancient myths who have traveled to the underworld, perhaps seeking love, like Orpheus, redemption, like Hercules, mischief, like Theseus and Pirithous, or guidance, like Odysseus and Aeneas. What they all have in common is coming back a different person than when they entered. Their desires might be different, they might have a new purpose in their life or journey, or they might have new knowledge that helps make the challenges ahead easier to handle. Would it surprise you to know that Barbara Gordon has also gone to the underworld and returned a different character? 
By the time Joker came knocking on the Gordon's door, Barbara had already experienced a downward spiral in her life and career. When we see Barbara in The Killing Joke, it's clear that she's content in her new life and role, spending time with her father, making cocoa, and attending yoga classes with her BFF, Colleen. Little does she know that she will not attend that yoga class nor any other yoga class for the foreseeable future. An agent of fate dressed in a Hawaiian shirt comes her way to encourage her to continue her heroine's journey towards her destiny. And as a side note, epic heroes have flaws, and most certainly Barbara Gordon's flaw is not looking through a peephole before answering a door in a city like Gotham. In the span of time it takes for a bullet to shatter a spine, Barbara's journey begins anew, but her destiny remains the same. Now forgive the macabre zoigma here, but Joker strips Barbara of herself at the same time that he strips her of her clothing. He brings her to her lowest point, physically and emotionally, and she has no choice but to travel to the underworld to seek wisdom as to what to do next. As Aeneas has the Sibyl as his guide in the underworld, Barbara has Richard Dragon, who helps her hone her body and mind. She leaves the underworld as Oracle, someone who uses technology rather than her fists to fight crime. Joker is the catalyst for Barbara metamorphosing from Batgirl to Oracle, and the reason for her changes in her personality. She becomes more moody, less trusting, more likely to look through peepholes now, even more hateful towards guns, and she exhibits PTSD. Her relationships with Batman and other heroes shift slightly as she's more content with being a digital, anonymous presence rather than a physical, known one. However, she never changes who she is at the core. Her prime directive continues to be to help people. She is still Barbara Gordon, and her destiny remains the same, although her path towards that destiny now looks different. Another villain in Barbara's life is Noah Cutler, a.k.a. The Calculator. He is the villain's answer to Oracle, an information broker to the less heroic. When Calculator first runs up against the Birds of Prey, he has a clear obsession with finding out Oracle's identity, possibly out of a hubristic desire to be the best, and also possibly because he can sell the information to the highest bidder. He decides that the best way to go about this is to go after the known quantities, i.e. her agents. Savant is later captured, and in a moment that recalls the killing joke, Savant is beaten and tortured for two days so that he will give up the identity of Oracle. Thankful he doesn't, but he does leave the team after being rescued. While the comic doesn't explore Oracle's feelings regarding all that transpired, it would be a misjudgment of Barbara's character to think that she was not affected by this. Someone was hurt because of her and for her, and she has been in that victim role before. Like the goddess Nemesis, Calculator strikes at Oracle when she has started to feel comfortable in her role, and possibly also arrogant that she and her team are unbeatable. Calculator is possibly one of the reasons why she keeps her team small and will later kill herself and not reveal she is alive to many people of the DCU, some controversially so. She doesn't want this to happen again either to herself or to her team. Someone who is an on-again, off-again part of Barbara's team and life is, of course, Richard Grayson. Few heroes in ancient epic have a partner lover, taking part in the hero's life on and off the battlefield. Achilles had Patroclus, and Barbara has Dick. The most important love interest in her life, and yes, I do speak with complete bias. In the beginning, Dick as Robin, like Batman, underestimates Barbara, challenging her place in the then boys club. In her first time out, Barbara is told to leave it to the professionals. As a fellow woman at a competitive one, let me just tell you that's not the thing to say because that's going to push you to prove them even more wrong. Barbara does just that. She ends up helping both Batman and Robin out against Killer Moth using her mental rather than physical prowess. Robin unknowingly gives Batgirl a goal in mind, and she accomplishes it. 
As their tenures in the suits continue, the relationship between Dick and Barbara also shifts. Not romantically, not yet, but certainly platonically and professionally. In the pages of Batman Family, they become partners and are even referred to as the dynamite duo. They each confess they know each other's secret identities and treat each other as equals. What a thought. Barbara now is someone that she can talk to who can understand and empathize, empathize with her completely. The two make each other better as heroes, and even Bruce knows this, saying that he is not surprised by their successes, but comes to expect them. Dick appears in Barbara's life at key moments of transition, librarian to hero, rookie hero to veteran hero, walking hero to rolling one. As Oracle, no one underestimates herself as much as she underestimates herself. Dick, as Nightwing now, pushes Barbara to value herself more. He sees her as Barbara Gordon, changed, yes, but no less than she's ever been. In the pages of Birds of Prey number eight, he pushes her to trust herself and take a literal and proverbial leap. He convinces her of how strong she is physically and that she is more than just a brain in a chair. Just as Dick speaks to Barbara's physical abilities, he also speaks to her heart. As much as she professes to being over it, it being the fact that she no longer has use of her legs, the truth is she isn't, and it affects her relationships and her desire to be with anyone romantically. Dick looks beyond the chair to the woman and professes his feelings for Barbara, ultimately helping her find her heart again, as well as hope and optimism. As complicated as Dick's relationship is with Barbara, it does not compare with the complicated trajectory of Bruce's relationship. Similar to Dick Grayson, Bruce Wayne, i.e. Batman, whoever he is, his early role in Barbara's life was not a supportive mentor, rather someone who is more encouraging of her early retirement, as evidenced in the Killer Moth debut. Batman's not convinced as to Batgirl's pedigree, and as with several different heroes, in particular women, one has to earn his trust and respect. Batgirl has a bit of a stubborn streak to her. Perhaps that's one of the necessary qualities of a hero. So she takes what Batman says and follows it away, intent on proving him wrong. Ironically, like Killer Moth, Batman's initial dismissal of her pushes Batgirl to become a hero and succeed. She ultimately earns his trust and gains entrance into the Bat family, an emotional and physical support system for the heroes who tend the sacred flame at the center of the family, Gotham City. The Bat family is not always for life, as some members leave, die, or are removed. The odd thing is, however, that Batman is always watching, no matter the person's status in the family. After Barbara's injury at the hands of the Joker, she understandably takes a sabbatical from the family, choosing instead to make a new name for herself as Oracle on her own terms. Either due to Batman's need for control or his deep regard for Barbara, he keeps track of her, surveilling her visually and technologically. Now this annoys her to no end. She confronts him about it early on and tries to shirk the victim role, not wanting to be a painful reminder to the men of the Bat family of their inability to save her. Her stubbornness is her friend once more. She wants to prove Batman wrong once again and prove to others and herself that she is not fragile and will be strong once again. She returns to the Bat family when Batman sees her as Barbara, not a shattered spine. Batman is similar to the gods and goddesses that harass and manipulate the epic heroes, some pushing the heroes towards a goal of their own making or others desperately wanting the hero to fail. But it does seem like the majority of time in Barbara's career it is the fact that Batman withholds his praise and is more open with his criticism, either constructive or not, that pushes her. He is the mentor that is demanding and from whom the apprentice is starved for attention and would cherish any moment of praise. Batman may have difficulty showing his true feelings, but one cannot deny that he pushes Barbara to be better and shows her care, concern, and love when it counts most. Not until you pull back the curtain that veils mortals' eyes will you be able to see the gods at work or understand Batman's motives. 
finally, the other mentor idol in Barbara's life is her father, sometimes uncle, Jim Gordon. Since her mother, Barbara Keene, has not been a consistent presence in Barbara's life, her family starts and stops with Jim, and he is the one who influences Barbara at her core. Just as Aeneas uses his father Anchises as a model for piety and seeks his wisdom at all times, even to the depths of the underworld, Barbara bases her personal, professional, and heroic decisions off of what she would envision her father doing. Because of her closeness with her father, she learns about police work and procedure and probably also learns a little bit about the criminal mind. And oftentimes, during a particularly tough situation or decision, she will even bring up what Jim has said in the past during a similar situation. Either fairly or unfairly, Barbara is first referred to as daughter of the police commissioner. Perhaps she knows that she has a great deal to live up to, but rather than resent her father and shirk her responsibilities, she decides to be a Gordon through and through. This idea is similar to the Roman virtue of dignitas, which is the accumulation of personal clout and influence that a Roman, a male Roman citizen acquires throughout his life, including such things as one's personal reputation, moral standing, along with to what extent that man is entitled to respect and proper treatment. A father's dignitas is passed to his son, similar to what you see in the Odyssey where the elders of Ithaca expect leadership from Telemachus while Odysseus is away. Jim's dignitas is passed to Barbara, but ultimately she has to make the decision what to do with that. In all things that Barbara does, she lives up to and augments the Gordon family name, not for the sake of notoriety, but because she knows that's the right thing to do. She helps the victim, the marginalized, her community, the state, the country, not only as Batgirl and Oracle, but also as Barbara Gordon. Jim teaches her some of the greatest lessons that she will constantly rely upon throughout her tenures as Batgirl and Oracle, and he gives her a strong foundation upon which she can build and strengthen her character. Jim acts as the origin of Barbara's heroic journey and the focal point. No matter the situation or villain, thinking of Jim, his character, and his teachings help orient her. So we've seen villains, partners, lovers, mentors, and family who have all crossed Barbara's path, sometimes infrequently, sometimes constantly. But the one thing they all have in common is that they have left an indelible mark on Barbara's journey. Her character, like her journey, is always changing and adapting to different situations. Barbara has triumphs and tragedies, but she is never weak. She's not defined by the men on her journey, but one must recognize the influences that they have had on who she has become and what she has accomplished. Barbara has had to contend with a number of outside forces, but instead of letting those things keep her pinned to the ground, she has surpassed everyone's expectations and forged her own path as a heroine. Thank you. It is, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, only since I've started in my journey with her on my podcast, getting into Oracle, have I really recognized her importance as that figure in continuity, and not just because she has her fingers everywhere, because all the heroes know about her, all the villains know about her, but just uh, being such a representative of the paraplegic community. I think we lost something huge there when we went to that. Um, it's interesting because I think they tried to sort of to, uh, be on either side of the fence, 
because they they dropped her age down a little bit and they wanted her to be Batgirl, I think, to bring on new readers. But there was always this hidden gem of, well, at one point she was Oracle. And only recently have they started to suss out what did that actually mean. And yes, actually she did have an injury and, you know, Killing Joke is in continuity and everything. I think... There's a t- I think we're at the point, however much I love Barbara Gordon and Cena, I think we're at the point now in comics where we do need to start bringing in the younger heroes and have her at that mentor role. I think, you know, one of my favorite runs has been Brian Q. Miller's Batgirl run because she was not only a mentor to Wendy, who was sort of, who was proxy, who was learning to be Oracle, but Oracle was a mentor to Stephanie Brown as Batgirl. And we've had so many opportunities. I mean, we've had casts, and Steph has popped up, and there have been so many chances to do that that I think it's it's time to maybe put Barbara as Batgirl away a little bit and, and have her more in that Oracle role. But I think, unfortunately, we're still missing a little something with her not having her legs um, or having her legs now. Yeah. So it's, yeah, she's great either way, but I think we're missing something without Oracle consistently in the universe. Yeah. Speaking about that question, what I know there are many powerful characters in the DC universe. Why didn't she seek out some of those characters that could potentially cure her uh, paralysis? Or did she and it just didn't work? Hmm. That's a good question. Why didn't she seek it out? Um, you know, I think... She was not only bo- broken physically, but emotionally. I don't know if necessarily that was the first knee-jerk reaction was, I've got to get back, I've got to get back. I think she had to make herself more emotionally whole before she went the physical track. Uh, there certainly were probably people. Uh, I remember there was, what was it, Oracle the Cure. We were teased a little bit that she was going to get yeah. it back. She had the Brainiac virus. I think she could wiggle her toes. Um, but that's too easy of an answer to be like, hey, there's magic. Let's, uh, let's heal you up. And what does that say about that community? Because in real life, I know these are comic books, and we're using it for escapism, but we also want representation, and we want to see people that look like us. And so to say, oh, this person who had, had to use a wheelchair, she's cured now. So people who use a wheelchair and read that con, so sorry, you don't have that representation anymore. And, and they can't do that. They can't go out and say, hello. I'm going to get this here. So I love the fact that she didn't, and I think that speaks to her because that chapter in her life was over. She has given some sour lemons, and she's going to make lemonade with those sour lemons. Great answer. Oh, thank you. There was a um, letter in a letter, there was a response to a letter in a letter column in one of the Batman comics, I want to say early 90s, where they basically responded as a matter of editorial policy that until... Someone could, someone who was paraplegic or not, or not paraplegic, but had that type of injury, sure. could walk again in the real world. They weren't going to have her walk again as Barbara Gordon. Of course, regime changes and what have you. Twenty years later, yeah. they reversed that. Yeah. But they actually did make a point to say that until this can happen in the real world, this does represent people, and we don't want to, you know, basically ignore that. Absolutely. And Kim Kim Yale and John Ostrander did such a wonderful and beautiful thing. They took, I'm so sorry, actually, hashtag sorry, not sorry, I, I hate the killing joke. But they took something that was ugly and horrific and made a really strong character. And, yeah, so I'm so glad that they, they kept her like that. Yeah? So speaking to uh, both panels, the question is, what, what are the barriers and why aren't we seeing 
Mm. Because the Bet brand has really never been more popular than it is now. She, you know, there are other female characters clearly getting, you know, adaptions. What are kind of the barriers to like a group of, or a female character from this specific, you know, Batman family receiving an adaptation? Do you want me to go? I can start. Please. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know exactly their perspective, but I think one is just a little risk aversion of these movies are a lot of money, and I think what they did with, with Wonder Woman, right, is they, they started her in the Batman-Superman film as kind of a rollout, which was a more successful one than they tried to do with, I think, the other characters in that film. But I think part of it is, yeah, I, Hollywood's just kind of risk-averse, and so there is if there isn't a history of female superheroes doing really well, um, I think they want to wait to kind of see that. So I, I don't really know what's kind of necessarily holding them back now from making that type of film, um, it's a good question. And you can always do some kind of animated or different things. Like it doesn't have to be the, the full-blown blockbuster type. But I think that's just kind of it, is they usually kind of follow trends. And if I mean, that's why we didn't have a Batman for a long time after Batman and Robin. It was just like, okay, people don't want this. I mean, it was a crappy film. People didn't want that. But I think that was just kind of one of the lessons they took. So. I think we're probably going in that direction. Yeah, it does come down to money. So in 2007, I think it was, the Wonder Woman animated feature, which I think is an amazing, amazing film. And so I thought, clearly, Batgirl Year One is next. And I think even Laura Montgomery had made like a tease image. So it didn't happen. I thought, what's going on? I created this internet uh, petition, got so many people. I got Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon to sign it, who wrote that, and sent it into the company, and they wrote back, and it, they just said it's come down to sales. We can't do back row year one. And now with live action, I think it came down to really crappy female, like, like I'm thinking Catwoman with Halle Berry and Elektra. And so Wonder Woman, there was so much of an onus for that to perform well. And she has opened the gates now. So you've got Wonder Woman, we've got Captain Marvel, which despite what the angry uh, nerds has said, was wonderful. <laughs> and I think with Margot Robbie and her headlining Birds of Prey, which I'm a little nervous. I don't know how dark it's going to be. I think it's going to open up more. But, you know, Marvel is more successful, so we've just got to get more... Um, yeah, better things into the the DC properties, and I think they're going in a, a good direction of having females write it as well as direct it. So we've got that representation there. So I'm hoping that it's going to start. I think a lot of that actually trace. It may not be showing up on the big screen, but the strong female DC characters show up on the small screen all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, Berlanti's created probably a half a dozen. You know. Everything, you know, black canary, white canary, sure. you know, all the different various canaries. You know, but I mean, mm -hmm. there's no shortage of, of strong female characters in the DC universe on TV every week. Yeah. I want to say there's no shortage of. I mean, there's more in the comics than there are on screen. Well, there's, good, there's more guys in the comics yeah. than there are girls in the, in the comics, too. But I mean, so proportionately, I mean, look at the cast of the Legends of Tomorrow. Half the team is female. In the Arrowverse, you probably, at the end, Green Arrow itself, you've got at least two girls as part of his team. If you don't count Felicity, if Supergirl is the, the main hero of her story, and her sister. You know, so, I mean, there's a lot of really strong female characters on TV. Right. They're just not making the transition to the, you know, the movie. And I guess it's just safer on the, the yeah. small screen because you're making a, a heavy financial investment in the, the large screen. You can take bigger risks with a comic book issue or TV, but when it comes to like mounting a big kind of Absolutely. film thing, 
you don't want to lose your, your shirt on that, but that's a great point. The DC superhero girls, uh, yeah. there's like, I don't know, like four films, even Legos make films about it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty big. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And the nice thing about DC superhero girls is you get to explore different characters without sort of a broken past. So what would Harley be like without the Joker? And you can kind of see her. She's still kind of crazy, but it's nice to see that he doesn't have his hand on her yet. Yeah. yeah, I thought yeah, but I think at, at its core, you you've got her. You've got this strong female who is willing to step up to Batman, and I think she's one of the few people in the Bat family that is willing to do that. I remember in the recent uh, trial of Batwoman comic that was running, everyone was deferring her. They were looking at Barbara like, Barbara, what do you think about this? And I thought, absolutely, you need to look to Barbara because I think, you know, her intelligence and she's she's a veteran right there, you know, don't look at her sex. I mean, she is absolutely capable and, and deserves that. So I think, and I, I love that they casted Rosario Dawson because I think Barbara Gordon as a character could be any race. I think I've told people that with live action, the only thing I demand is red hair. That's all I demand. Everything else will be great. So, yeah, I think at its core, they, they got Barbara down in that Lego movie. Yes? Mm. Absolutely. That that they can use that is that would be perceived as weakness as a strength. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, not, not only if uh, you see superheroes, uh, peculiarity and characteristic and uh, uh, like this femininity mm-hmm. about uh, respect superheroes, uh, uh, which kind of difference you see in, the, in both uh, characters. Yeah, uh, like male versus female. Yeah, yeah, but it's very narrative. So like butter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a Batman I don't think is going to use his uh, sexuality very much. Well, I guess, you know, you did talk about, well, I guess Sleepy with Talia wasn't necessarily one. But with Batgirl, you know, I think back to this terrible story, but it's funny to where her costume cut-ups where she gets like a run in her tights mm-hmm. and her mask gets all messed up and but then the, the crooks stop and they go oh get a load of those gams and then you realize at the very end she's like well it was all my master plan which I think is great you think about Power Girl the first thing you think about Power Girl of course is uh, are, is her bosom but you know you learn that actually that hole was created because hey she wanted to distract people and whoa they're distracted and then bam she's got you so it's it's something that you know women I think we're, we're seen as the the weaker sex or whatever and of course you know we're we're looked at and ogled and everything why don't we turn that on its head now and hey you're ogling me guess what I've just taken you down so I think it is something that that female characters can use and we might look back in the silver age and be like yikes that was bad but now I think it's it's something you got to use what you have 
I think so. It depends, I think, how it's used, but yeah, I think so. You know, in uh, The Producers, uh, one of the characters says, if you got it, flaunt it, so. Yeah. You know, it's and not just the sort of sexuality, but like in the movies, too, the... So, like, Catwoman does this, you know, you wouldn't dare hit a woman, and in The Dark Knight Rises, too, she sort of pretends to be shrieking, I'm just a woman, they don't actually suspect she's the one doing the stuff. So I think it's also not just using kind of feminine charms and sexuality, but invoking I'm a woman, you wouldn't think I would be capable of something like that. Whereas a man, you would. I think that's part of that advantage. Question for Brandon, actually. Yeah. I was curious about your, speaking of Catwoman, I was just curious if you could say a little bit about your opinion of the the character of Catwoman in Dark Knight Rises, in particular, um, how the the happy ending of the movie is Bruce and her together. And I always felt like the movie doesn't seem like justify that relationship, to have that be like, it kind of feels like a consolation prize for Rachel Dawes, so you have a Rachel Dawes. And I wondered how you felt about that, and did you feel like the, was that like a weakening of Catwoman, or? Yeah, so I guess... I've always thought that, honestly, the way I always kind of feel about the movie, this is going back to, it's not necessarily what what the director wants, but maybe what you want, is that, like, it's kind of Bruce Wayne did die, and this is, like, Alfred's just sort of, like, a dream, or that Alfred just kind of, like, this is his dream of he would see Wayne, right, because he says, like, I want to see you someday or imagine you being happy at some, like, Venice coffee shop or something. So I guess I never thought about weakening Catwoman so much as, I think it gets back to, I don't know if I actually like seeing Bruce Wayne happy and retired. It's a nice closure for a trilogy to be done. Um, but I don't know. I also, too, like, um, same with Batman Returns. Is, is Catwoman, like, in Batman Returns, Batman offers, like, you know, we can be together. And she's like, that's not really my style. So I think either Wayne kind of cuts these off or the women do before he can. So I would say it's not really consistent with her character. I mean... They, they make her character, I want, pretty shiny things, but I don't think she likes the the conditions where that's really put upon. So I agree, I don't think it's really consistent. I just think it's a nice, like, closure for the trilogy. But I didn't love it, no. Yeah? Um, what's your... Um, you um, said you were partial to the Barbara Gordon Dick Grayson. Oh, I sure am. What's your take on what their relative ages should be? Yes, it certainly like has. She was six years older to almost in the new 52, it seemed like she was younger. Yeah, yeah, that it was scandalous in Batman Family Number One when she kissed him to shut him up because he was talking all this mansplaining stuff, and um, and then the letters pages rolled in. I think Batman Family Three, like she's so much older than him. How dare you? Um, I would like them to be of comparable age. I think though, I would love for her honestly to have her Congresswoman and PhD back. And so if I had to choose, I would like her to be older. I think just um, she seems like a, a wise character to me and, and not old. She doesn't need to be old, old, but I think her age should reflect some of the experiences that she's gone through, not only in and out, of, well, in and out of the cowl, I think. I saw, did you still have a question? I saw your hand. Yeah, so um, looking at, you talked about Vicky Vale and the original Batman, um, and even though it's not stated, it's mentioned in Batman Returns um, that he explains that you know, she left, they couldn't deal with the duality. Right. Um, was that a, like, they couldn't, they didn't bring uh, Kim Basinger back, or was that a narrative decision? Do you know any of that kind of that? I don't. I assumed it was just to create space for Catwoman, so Wayne doesn't look like a cad of, like, I'm really interested in this. 
woman that starts out really mousy and then there's like this dominatrix. So I don't I don't really know that. But like actually, there's kind of a dig when I was talking about the weird feminine stuff. So um, when he mentions like yeah, I was seeing a woman, Vicky Vale. I think Selena Kyle says something like ballerina or ice skater or something that just again like. There are these references to women that have a feminine name or actor like, yeah, ditzy and stupid. Um, but I don't know the reason. I just, again, assumed it was so we could have room for the, the sort of Catwoman dynamic. That's a good question, though. Yes. Talking about uh, all the men in Barbara's journey, mm. um, and I'm thinking about this, too. I've noticed that she is more influenced by, like, and emulates the men as opposed to the women in her life. Mm. Uh, why do you think that is? Do you think it's the whole absentee mother thing? And what women do you feel are the biggest influences for Barbara? I'll go with the second one first because that one's the easiest question or easier question. I think for sure Black Canary, just because of her relationship with her over the course of Birds of Prey and just how powerful a moment it was when um, Dinah finally learned of, of Barbara's identity. And they're just sisterhood first and foremost. And I'm talking pre New Fifty Two because it's kind of wonky in the in the current continuity. Um, other women? Oh my gosh! I'm so sorry. I almost forgot Cassandra Kane. <laughs> Cassandra Kane is huge because I think in that moment Barbara takes on for the first time a maternal role, um, teaching her how to read. Um, just caring for her as a mother would, I think that, and that helps her. I think being with Cass for that period of time helped her prepare for Stephanie Brown and Wendy later on. So I think those would be the the females. But that's of course not really answering your question because she influences them. But I think you know, with any relationship, you're learning from. It's it's a balancing act. You're learning from somebody, and they're learning from you. As for why. I think part of it is probably because she was in this male-dominated universe, and so those were really the only people that she was running up against or with. And, you know, right out of the bat, you've got Killer Moth, who's a man. You've got Batman and Robin, who are men. And then Jason Bard, who is a man, but, you know, feminine in the fact that he's treating her as an equal, so it's a nice little counterpart. So I think it's just her place. But I would say that the fact that she didn't have her mother was absentee, or died, depending on the continuity, that uh, she really just relied on her father. And I think she's, uh, there's an author named Maureen Murdoch who did um, Heroine's Journey. She would consider Barbara Gordon a, a father's daughter or a, what, yeah, father. Daddy's girl? Uh, it's kind of like that, yeah. Or a, yeah. So. Um, especially for uh, Brandon. Um, so you're talking about Batman having difficulty with relationships. Um, I think, in general, writers of superheroes tend to feel like for a superhero to have a, a long-term successful romantic relationship is boring. Mm -hmm. And like I'm thinking of what happened with Spider-Man. You know, he was married to Mary Jane, and the writer, and he was having a baby, and the writers said, "No, we don't want to do this." So they you know, made the ba baby just sort of disappear and never really existed, <laughs> and broke broke up Pete and Mary Jane. And I mean, I can't think of many superheroes that have really had successful long-term relationships. Something always, something bad always happens. Um, so I guess my question is: Is it? Yeah. Do you think it's possible to to do that? I mean, are the writers just not imaginative enough? Or well, so I, I think one thing that's maybe a little different is I feel like there's a greater stability in the relationship pairing with so. Um, 
with other heroes. So, like, I mean, with Spider-Man, it usually is Mary Jane, right? Like, not always, but I feel like with Bruce Wayne, there has been this kind of just rotation of women, too, where he'll kind of be in there for maybe an arc. But a lot of times, too, they'll... I mean, I've read tons of Batman comics where there really there aren't women being rescued, and he isn't really in a relationship. The most they'll see it is just the Playboy kind of front, right? But he won't be. So I think that's a little different. That, like, yeah, Peter Parker will be angsty about like, am I good enough? And I have to balance school and this girlfriend and superhero thing. It may not work out. I agree with you that that, especially maybe younger audiences. I think yeah, the idea of like my hero is married and paying off a mortgage is maybe not as interesting, but. Um, I think with Wayne, there's a greater pushback against we don't we don't want a woman to be too close to him for a long period of time. We need to have that woman leave or him move on, and maybe we'll bring in someone else again. But I don't think that happens as much with some of the other characters. But I think you're right. Just having sort of some tension in that relationship or breakups. The kid, yeah, it's, unless you use it like they did with Damien or something sort of weird and kind of perverse, then it can then it can work. Did you wanna? At all or no. Oh, well, I like stable relationships. I don't know what I can say about that. You know, I'm thinking back to our keynote speaker and just talking about, you know, what I bemoan the fact is that they seem to have, leading up to 50, Selena and Bruce, seem to have like a pretty healthy relationship as far as, you know, someone could in that life because. They were able to go out and fight together, um, or she wouldn't. She, he would just get up, and she'd still be in bed. And I thought that's—I think that's perfectly fine. She could also go off and do her little misadventures. So I would love to see Dick and Babs married in the future, and and something. But apparently, Detective One Thousand has her married to some guy named Jason, and that's a little out. Who who knows what that is? But yeah, I guess they just—I mean, writers like conflict. And so they think maybe marriage is the end of conflict, but I don't think that's true. There was some, there was some guy I don't remember his the guy's name again uh, and his relationship with in the DC company, but he had a quote about DC's sort of affiliated superhero shouldn't be happy mm. in their per- private lives. And that Dan kind of, Didio. Yes, thank you, yeah. thank you. That was in relation to uh, Batwoman. Yep. relationship yeah oh yes with maggie sawyer yeah yep. so and which is really sad because that was a beautiful relationship and it was uh, a lesbian relationship which you know it was it was breaking bounds and no they can't get married no yeah. thanks that well the x-men were the the first uh gay yeah. marriage so they they got it done thank you marvel <laughs> yes is that it we have time yeah three minutes okay well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was happy. I was happy with how it turned out. You know, if I had more time, I probably would have memorized my presentation and, you know, been able to to stand and do that rather than read. But I'm a pretty good public speaker and reading. I make a lot of eye contact and I don't drone on and I was able to insert you know, different moments, like you noticed with the question and answer, you know, you afterwards, you always think about oh, what what I could have said, there were certainly a couple of times I, I wish I would have mentioned, you know, Josh asked about what about the women in her life. And I thought oh, I should have said Supergirl, because that was an impact both in Barbara Gordon's as well as Stephanie's. And then with that whole, you know, femininity question, I number one was concerned, like, gosh, did I? How was that? 
did I speak well on that? Because afterwards I thought, did, you know, did I betray womanhood that, you know, what I intend, did that come across? And I could have, I should have, the underestimation was absolutely something because, you know, underestimate me to your peril. Look at my boobs to your peril. And I also should have mentioned just the double standard and probably brought up my favorite topic, of course, which is Batman's wee wee, because that would have been, I think, a really poignant thing that you, that's the reason why <laughs> I guess when people get so upset at that and but no one cares about all of the, the the woman on display. And but we're getting a little bit to you know i don't think he's used it to his advantage but batman or not batman nightwing's butt i think is growing in popularity and so that would have been something to also bring up that just maybe those two examples on the on the feminine thing but you sort of think about it the rest of the day of oh i could have said this i could have said this but i think overall it went really well a couple people came up to me afterwards and and said how much they liked it Dr. Schwartz-Levine came up to me afterwards. On uh, the next day, one of the organizers came up and said it was his favorite presentation, which, I mean, wow, that's a that's a huge thing. Got interviewed by in a, a paper about it and had to re-explain my, my feminine wiles comment, which was a little scary because, again, I didn't want to be misspeaking. But I'm, yeah, I'm happy I did it. And then afterwards, I was just completely wiped and, and practically falling asleep throughout the rest because I think, you know, the adrenaline had left my body. So, yeah, I'm just thankful that I was able to do it. So then there was another keynote speaker. It was Dan Mishkin, which I'll have a story about him soon. Growing Gotham, making Metropolis, building the DC Universe. And I missed part of it because I think he, he talked a lot about Boo Devil and, and his different creations. I was doing my newspaper interview, so I missed part of that. And then from four to five, I went over to see Josh, my first nemesis. He was on a panel figuring out the Dark Knight, Transmediality, Creativity, and the Bat Toy by Simon Bourne. And then it was Josh, How Gotham Adapts Batman to the Small Screen. And then Batman Pitching for the Mets, Matt Harvey as the Dark Knight of Gotham by Raymond Shook. So here is Josh's presentation. Yes, uh, Joshua Lappin Bertoni. Um, yeah, I will introduce myself. <laughs> um, so you have two rooms to choose from today, so thank you for choosing this room. So Very, very flattered. And if anyone leaves to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water, just know I will take it very personally. <laughs> All right, so I am Joshua Lappin-Bertoni. I am a freelance contributor for the Batman Universe, uh, BatmanUniverse.net fan site. Uh, we have a few other people from the site who have been speaking throughout. Yeah, he's waving. Uh, you might have seen my colleague Stella earlier today. <laughs> Um, and I'm a freelancer for the DC Universe uh, streaming app. I don't know if we have any subscribers in here. Um, if you do, if we do, um, uh, my boss did ask me to say that if you like Batman, uh, we can announce that every single digitalized comic from post-crisis pre-Flashpoint will be coming to the app this week. But will somebody be coming to the door? No. He jiggled and he walked away. <laughs> All right. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, now that we got that shameless promotion out of the way. Let's analyze Gotham and its place in Batman fandom. Does anyone watch the show? Okay, yeah. <laughs> some of you are familiar, some of you are not. So, Those who um, do watch it, if I make something up, don't tell them that I'm lying. Let them believe it. 
So for the last five years, I've been talking about Gotham for a podcast aptly titled The Gotham Chronicle. Uh, talking about the show into a microphone for hours each week has become second nature, so I was like, hey, let me try doing it in person for a much more condensed period of time. Here we are. It's been a great five years, so I'm going to begin uh, before the actual talk by looking at some of my favorite moments from the show and uh, some of my favorite memories from times I've interviewed the cast over the past few years. That's uh, one of the series stars, Ben McKenzie. He's very upset. Why is he upset? You'll find out. <laughs> Now, there is one of the interviews where the audio is a little bad for a few seconds. I could have spent an hour leveling that, but at this point I had to, like, cook it in the... In, but the rest of the audio should be that question was no, that was not Martha Wayne. And I told Aaron Richards a few seconds later. So, um, I love one of the, to explain one of the little things in the video, there's kind of a running joke in the background of the show that in the first season, uh, Commissioner Gordon was sleeping in a locker room and every time I would go to a press junket, I would ask, are we gonna, like, get a house for him? And they say, you know, only you and Ben McKenzie, who plays Gordon, care about it, so I ask him about it every time I talk to him and he's like, so glad you care, so... There was a little running theme in those videos. So, with Gotham in its final stretch of episodes, we have a finale airing on April 25th. Now is the perfect time to reflect on how the show has brought the Batman mythos to the small screen. Back in 1939, I don't think that Bob Kane or Bill Finger imagined that their characters would be featured in a long-running primetime drama. Probably because in 1939, the medium was old-time radio, but... The same point stands. They didn't think that it would get this far. They did, and there was a little bit of arrogance. But So the type of show that um, Gotham is, is defined by the era in which it's aired and the era in which it's developed, which is kind of at like a cusp and a turning point of superhero television. There was a time when you could not do a straight-up superhero show on TV. If it was a cartoon, sure, but network executives were very, very apprehensive about live-action superhero shows. They thought it was hokey. You know, there was a few over the years, but they were generally regarded as silly. 
Um, if you're familiar with the Superman prequel Smallville, if you go back to its earlier seasons, they like were really trying to be, especially in their marketing, the anti-superhero show. They had a mantra called No Flights, No Tights. So the earliest episodes of Superman, it was basically like Dawson's Creek, and then the last five minutes of the show, Clark would fight, and I say fight, he would like knock out a villain, and then it would go back to, you know, like... Uh, emo teenager music playing while he's in the barn longingly looking at Kristen Kruick. With later seasons, yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> later seasons of the show leaned more heavily into Superman hero elements. Like, I remember when, you know, he had like Doomsday and like Zod and he would fight them for a whole season. But it was like not at all what it was in the early seasons. But even as Smallville was kind of becoming more of a superhero show in its later years, there's still a reluctance from major networks to kind of do a straight-up superhero show. So, what changed? Probably that little thing called the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, we got movie number, like, 22 in the series coming out in a few weeks. Uh, actually, same. it's premiering the same night as the last episode of Gotham. So, big night for comic fans. Uh, resurgence of the whole superhero movie genre changed the landscape. Now there's just as many superhero shows as there are movies. I, any night of the week, you can have Flash, Black Lightning, and we're even going to have, uh, regarding if it's picked up, they just filmed the pilot, but Batwoman is most likely going to begin her own show this fall, so more Batman representation in primetime. Yet Gotham's premise still feels like it's from that previous era of comic book shows. After all, hasn't, like, the CW's Arrowverse shows proven that we've outgrown doing prequels for superhero shows? Can't we just do, like, a regular superhero show? It doesn't have to be a prequel or a twist. So where does that leave Gotham? The show has actually followed a very similar path to Smallville in some ways, where their early seasons were kind of villains of the week. Um, you know, like, Smallville and Gotham had this similar thing where you can take the first episodes of their season... And aside from various subplots, you can mix the episodes up, put them out of order, and, you know, you really wouldn't be all that confused. And as Gotham's evolved, it's kind of abandoned its mission to be a prequel, you know, as they've seen that, oh, we don't need to do that anymore, like other shows have. And it's kind of embraced more of its comic booky elements, like Smallville did in its later seasons, except Gotham didn't take as long. If you watch a random episode of season one and then you skip around the season four, you would be seeing a completely different show. Many of the villains are now fully realized versions of their comic book counterparts, even though Bruce hasn't thrown a Batarang yet. If you've seen that trailer for the final episode, you will see a Batarang thrown, though, so... It's almost like the series got impatient and decided to rush to the finish line. And if you remember, when Gotham was being developed, it was uh, during a time when there wasn't a lot of straight-up superhero shows in primetime, so that's why they were doing it that way then. Remember the cape? Yeah, one person remembers the cape, and, that's, and that proves the point right there. Like, you couldn't do a superhero show in primetime because one person in this room remembers the cape. I mostly remember it as a joke on Community. <laughs> it's way better than it should have been. It's awful. It's yeah. <laughs> I, I heard good things, but I, for whatever reason, it didn't take off. <laughs> oh, it's not good. But yeah, when they were developing, <laughs> yeah, when they were developing Gotham, like you know, it's like people are like, I don't know, uh, you know, we have the cape, and the landscape hadn't changed yet, and you know, so I could speculate and go into a very deep analysis on how Gotham's premises changed over the years and evolved and why it has. But this lecture is not three hours long, so let's switch gears and talk about characters. 
Um, for those who watch the show, who do you feel the main character of the show is? Because it's kind of an ensemble cast, but there's differing opinions there. Okay, so there's silence, so I'm going to pretend that somebody it's said Jim. Jim Gordon. And if you said... It's Jim. Yeah, there we go. Oh, I don't have to pretend. My, my imagination is so active, I could actually hear you say it. <laughs> so yes, the focus is Jim Gordon. So before we get into how Gotham utilizes Jim as a main character, we'll talk about the history of Jim Gordon. Since his debut in 1939, because it's also Jim Gordon's 80th anniversary, he's become one of the most nuanced characters in Batman mythos, but he was not always that way. For many years, he was around simply to serve as exposition. He would show up at the beginning of the story and be like, oh, Batman, you know, Two-Face is robbing the second national bank on the second day of the second month. And then, like, you know, arrest the people at the end, like, good job, Batman. If you ever see Batman Returns, he's still like that. He's like, thanks for saving the day, Batman, and then walks off, you know. <laughs> Pat Hingle was underused. Um, anyway, so he would do that, or he would turn on the bat signal. That's all Gordon was, you know, in those early stories. So how do you know how long it took us to learn Gordon's first name in the comics from 1939? Does anyone have a guess? I see someone thinking, so I'm going to wait for Okay. 1965? Uh, it was earlier, but it was still a very long time for a character. So it was World's Finest, issue 53. It was actually from that story that was um, that Aaron Richards is looking at in that video. World's Finest, 53, which was published in 1951, 12 years after his first appearance. He was just Gordon for 12 years. And even then, we gave him a first name, but he was still just a guy who turns on the bat signal... So, Gordon was changed by two events that happened during the next few decades. The first one was, uh, we were introduced to his daughter, Barbara, in 1967. Now, we had kind of family members for Gordon. He had, like, an unnamed wife, and he had a son, which I'm not even going to get into there, uh, but they weren't really developed characters. Barbara was not only developed, because she was Batgirl and because she had her own backups, we were able to see Jim in another light outside the police station. We were able to see him... As a father, we were able to see him as a nurturing person. Didn't start off that way either, because at the end of Batgirl's first appearance, Jim's kind of chastising his daughter for, like, not being as cool as Batgirl. He's like, yeah, you got your PhD and your doctorate, but, you know, Batgirl's pretty awesome. So, not the best father, but he did. He, they wrote him better later on. So after that rough start, Jim got humanized more. So the second event to humanize him, oh, man, was... Uh, the groundbreaking comic by Frank Miller, Batman Year One. So in addition to bringing Batman's origin into the modern era, it humanized Jim Gordon in a way that was controversial. Um, he was still a dedicated cop, but there was a storyline in the book where uh, he cheated on his pregnant wife with a co-worker. Now, Year One, it's considered a classic. If you look at, like, you know, stories that change Batman forever, best Batman stories, Year One is almost always on that list. But imagine being there when it came out at that time comic fans were curious or curious were furious they were also curious curious or curious they were furious that this was being done to this classic character they had grown up with um you know you're a batman reader for decades you watch the batman 66 show and your view of gordon is batgirl's kindly father or like the guy from the 1966 tv show with the red phone and you're reading your one and you're like he's cheating on his pregnant wife what a jerk um, he does do right, and he does, you know, break up with the woman, and he does admit what happened to his wife and try and fix his marriage. But 
it was still something that was controversial to portray him as this morality flawed character. We also were given a new side to the Gotham City Police Department. It was now a corrupt force that Jim was trying to change from within. Now, if that's um, if you watch Gotham, that probably sounds familiar to a few of you. So, while Year One did make Gordon an adulterer, it gave him a new purpose. He was now the honest cop that Gotham needed. He was now the moral compass for Gotham's police force. Anybody could light the bat signal. Anyone could tell Batman that Joker's poisoned the reservoir. But Year One made Gordon important in another way. It made him the person that the police department needed to stay on track, to like not be corrupt anymore. And that's the version that Gotham has most heavily leaned on. And that's the Gordon that Gotham gave us during its first season. He's the new cop in town. He's making it his mission to clean up the city. And like his character in year one, he has some elements of moral ambiguity. But as the series progresses, the moral ambiguity becomes more of a moral deficiency. Part of this was due to the necessity of modern storytelling. Um, if you watch a lot of modern TV shows, especially the popular ones, it's full of anti-heroes. Uh, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Dexter, Sons of Anarchy. Um, you know, we're not watching, like, uh, Cliff Huxtable anymore, although that's a bad example because of the actor. But Cliff Huxtable, you know, like... People, people aren't watching TV to see, like, Ward Cleaver with his pipe, you know? Like, it's people want anti-heroes. People want jerks. So, if Gotham had aired in 1962, Jim Gordon would probably be closer to Andy Griffin. But because it's... Yeah, with Barney Fife as, and everything. Um, because it's 2019, he curses, he kills, and he makes questionable choices. So, Gotham's version of Gordon is defined by his year one interpretation, but it has a dash of 2019 storytelling thrown in there. And this conference is named after Batman, and it's his birthday, so I'd be doing you all a disservice if I did not mention David Mazzaus' portrayal as Bruce Wayne. Over the past five years, we've seen him go from a small boy to a confident young man. We've seen Batman's origin many times over the years. Poor Thomas and Martha Wayne. They, every time you know you turn on a new cartoon, they're just getting shots, a new movie shot. <laughs> um, last summer, there was a movie, Teen Titans Go to the Movies, and like you wouldn't think that that would have a Thomas and Martha Wayne murder scene, but it did, and it actually had a hilarious version of it, but wow, like... There's, someone did like a YouTube supercut of like all the times they've been murdered in media, and like it's... Wow. So... Um, so as a serialized drama, Gotham has had a chance to track Bruce's childhood in a way that none of these other mediums have. Because we always see the death, and we see like kind of the montage of the training. Comics will even do a flashback. But like we're seeing in real time how he grows up week to week after his parents' death. We've, um, blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, we've seen the young boy Bruce's journey to becoming Batman in comics... And a really well-done live-action version of Batman Begins, but those stories did not have the opportunity to track, it, to, track, to track his growth and development in real time. We didn't see Christian Bale go from an eight-year-old to an adult in Batman Begins. You know, we had the benefit of time skips for that. With Gotham, we get to see more detail. We get to see how young Bruce reacted in those days, weeks and months following the murder of his parents. Whether you agree with the interpretation or not, it's still pretty impressive that in Batman's 80-year history, this is your first time seeing that. So there are lots of characters, lots of plot lines, lots of themes that I would love to talk about here. But unlike Dobby Mazow's, I don't have a full five years to take you on this journey. However, if you want more Gotham discussion, we're new. I, I lied when I said we're done with shameless plugs. 
If you want more Gotham uh, discussion, feel free to check out thebatmanuniverse.net. Flag me down if you see me here over the weekend. Gotham is the first live-action Batman show since Adam West, depending on if you count Birds of Prey or not. So it will be interesting to see the legacy it develops post-mortem. Final episode airs April 25th. Be sure to check it out. But now, I give the floor to the next presenter. During the Q&A for Josh, I scurried over to the other room because the Batman sex and gender panel was happening. He Doesn't Know You Like I Do, Barbara Keene's Sex Appeal and Gotham's Woman Problem by Carrie Millisap Spears. And she was interesting because she was adding a gothic literature lens to Gotham. And so I got to see, she talked about Dracula, about Frankenstein, so that was fun. And then how the heteronormative patriarchy of Batman is challenged by the diversity of his supporting cast by Donovan Morgan Grant. And finally, The Backrolls, 50 Years of Feminism in Gotham City by Carolyn Coca. Here is Don and Carolyn's and then the Q&A afterwards. Hi, um, my name is Donovan Morgan Grant. I am a writer and podcaster. I've written for the BatmanUniverse.net uh, Pushing 10 years. Um, I also do a podcast, a social political podcast called Questions We Don't Have Answers uh, with my co host Erickson Chute. And today, let's talk about Batman and how the heteronormative patriarchy is challenged by his supporting cast. So, there's a lot of reasons why we're all here, a lot of reasons why we like Batman. He is veritably a superhero's renaissance man. He is a scientist, he is a patriot, or has been a patriot. A father figure, a playboy, a martial artist, and most belovedly, a detective. However, (laughs) there is a limitation to uh, portraying the same type of character for this long, 80 years. Uh, A certain character kind of created by the same type of creator. you know, his, his wealth status, his sort of taciturn, strict, masculine way of, of uh, addressing problems, whether they be criminal or social or political in Gotham City, there's a certain repetition that that kind of creates for the type of stories you're going to read. So it helps to have different types of people behind it or different kind of, of characters to reflect upon it. And before I go further, this is not to suggest that there's only one type of person who likes Batman. I mean, I love Batman. There's different types of people here who love Batman. And... Many people of color, many people of different orientations and genders love Batman. Uh, to quote uh, Osvaldo Oyola, a former professor at New York University, we also cannot forget that the way fans of color engage with characters and stories can recircuit and reinterpret those stories in ways that provide the kind of productive identification that challenges that tired old repetitive and thoughtless representation. Longtime comic readers of color can do this because we have a lot of practice at it. And is that practice, literally a reading practice, that is crucial for a community of readers to learn to navigate the problematic tropes embedded in superhero narratives? So let's ask three questions. What will the future of superhero diversity look like? Will Batman need to change? And if he does, will those changes be fundamental? Start Robin. Dick Grayson, for the first 30 years of his existence, you know, it was the dynamic duo... Kate Rashad and the Boy Wonder, they were rarely apart. They were uh, DC's most famous double act. Then 1969 happens, Dennis O'Neill ships Dick Grayson off to college. 
1969 is a very interesting time for anybody to be in college. There was a lot of uh, strife going on in America. You had the uh, Kent State shooting. You had the Weathermen protests in Vietnam. And so Dick Grayson's backups in Detective Comics reflected that. Whereas Batman rarely, if ever, interacted with anything sort of um, political. And when he did, it wasn't very, you know, uh, it wasn't something you wanted to emulate. Dick Grayson actually offered some nuance uh, and reflected not only the times, but the readers reading these comic books. He didn't know who he was as he came of age. He didn't know where to go. He wasn't liberal. He wasn't conservative. And he didn't know if he even should still be Robin. This type of new type of storytelling reflects not only his character and his development, but how he interacts with Batman as the years go on. By the time we get into the 80s, writers like Jerry Conway and Marv Wolfman start writing Dick Grayson differently. He doesn't agree with Bruce. He thinks they should trust people. They should hear, they should hear out who they're going up against. And Bruce is not really seeing... He thinks that Dick's too young. He doesn't necessarily agree with him. And so diversity in storytelling, diversity in characters is created. And with that, we have a new character in Nightwing. Everyone loves Nightwing. He's, he's the friendly Batman. He is the psychic who made good. He, has, he is diversity in storytelling, and he's managed to achieve that. How well does that translate to other characters? Let's move on to uh, another old favorite, Barbara Gordon. Barbara Gordon uh, was a fan favorite when she first appeared in the, in the late 60s. Um, she was a detective. She was uh, a woman with education. She was a very physical, fierce fighter. Um, and as the, as the readership uh, reflected, she, she was kind of a breath of fresh air, despite the fact that there were other uh, female crime fighters you know, before 1969. It didn't matter that DC tried to pare her down by saying sooner or later women, a woman will be a woman and write stories like costume cutouts because uh, the fans reacted badly to that as well. They weren't having any of that. So um, as the years went on, Barbara Gordon actually started to consider different ways on combating crime. Uh, she assumed a uh, nomination for her father to run for Congress and became a congresswoman. She wanted to, uh, on, a, on, a camp, on a platform of prison reform, and this went on for throughout the rest of the 70s. By the time we get into 1980, um, she's maintained the status quo of being you know, a congresswoman by day and the domino daredevil by night. Um, by the time we get into uh, the end of Batman Family, kind of going back into back up into Dev Comics, things start to ha- things start to change. She loses her congressional seat uh, in, in an effort to talk about an anti-crime reform rather than prison reform. So there's a little bit of a political difference there. Um, very soon after that, she actually loses her memory. She loses her identity as Batgirl and Barbara Gordon and her knowledge of who Batman and Robin are. And though she gets the first two back, uh, for whatever reason, she's not allowed to know who the Kate Crusaders are. So that was an interesting change, which kind of led into fewer appearances. She became more and more of Commissioner Gordon's supporting character uh, as the daughter of the police commissioner. And we're seeing more and more common stories of a lack of confidence. She's nearly killed by an assassin and, and kind of is frightened by death. She's experiencing uh, a lack of self-confidence and lack of self-esteem with other heroes. Crisis on Infinite Earths happens, uh, a big cosmic uh, fierce superhero battle, and she doesn't see her place in it. And finally, in 1988, through several stories of a lack of self-esteem, she um, quits the role as being Batgirl. And we never see her again. Or do we? Because she does become Oracle. However, she is saved by John Ostrander and his late wife, Kim Yale. Different types of creators offer a different type of character. She becomes a cyber hacker who um, saves the day uh, in a wheelchair. She, 
through the skin of her teeth offers diversity in storytelling. It was almost not that way, but it turned out to be that way. How does that, how does that relate to other characters beyond Robin and Batgirl? Well, let's turn to Lady Shiva. Lady Shiva first appeared in Richard, Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter, sort of DC's answer to Iron Fist. Um, she was this very indomitable, aggressive martial arts fighter who was kind of on the, on the side of the angels, although she kind of just went wherever danger went. Uh, created by Dennis O'Neill. She was reintroduced uh, in the pages of Question. In fact, this is the issue of uh, Question number one. And she became much more of a, an ethereal, almost alien type of character. Uh, she was neither good, she was neither, she was neither good nor evil. Um, she killed people, but she also had the power to heal people. Um, she helps train Vic Sage the question, but she also offers that, like, she's not, no one is in a position to, to judge her. No one is in a position to even know much about her. She's a very, she's mysterious in the kind of way that's not typically, like, this traditional oriental mis mystery. She's very human in how, sort of, otherworldly she becomes. And this is a pretty fascinating character. We see her explain to the question how, you know, he can't really define her, and she kind of goes wherever her interests lie, wherever her passion lies. And I think that she's actually one of DC Comics' most fascinating characters. Um, at least she was for a while. Uh, by the time she actually begins uh, interacting with Batman, things start to change rather radically. She becomes a mercenary. She trains mercenaries. She trains terrorists overseas. She, you can see in the artwork, uh, she's a lot more villainous, a lot more aggressive. She's still in the late 80s, early 90s, kind of amoral. She helps train the third Robin, Tim Drake. But she ultimately wants him to inherit her role as a sort of a world warrior and to kill. She starts saying, you're beneath me, you're beneath notice if you don't kill anybody. And so this becomes a lot more of a recognizable, a lot more uh, vilified type of person. And it's interesting how she is now kind of defined as a terrific fighter, a very capable fighter. But as much of a, of a dangerous woman as she is, she's that much kind of closer to recognizably evil. If she's interacting with the superhero genre uh, more and more, she can't be the more unique, interesting person that she once was. Let's move on to uh, Leslie Tompkins. Uh, she was a character also created by Danielle O'Neill, who kind of confronted Batman in his relation to violence. She's his uh, uh, mother figure. She was there when his parents were killed. And every time she interacts with Batman, she tells him, I wish you would stall things without fighting. There is a way to help people without violence. And this is kind of the, the traditional, typical uh, ethical and moral argument between the two. It really goes beyond that. Uh, they typically meet up, they hug, then they argue, and um, they, she always says, you know, there's got to be different ways you can do that. And he says, there is no other way. I don't like violence just as much as you do, but that's, that, those are my means. Um, and the conversation generally ends when she says, no matter what, I still love you. You know, you know, I failed you, and, I, and I, I'm proud of the person you are. I just wish your means would be different. And through that, it's kind of a way where Batman kind of gets out of, you know, answering his own, you know, answering the argument, kind of uh, releasing the tension. His way is, old, obviously, is a comic book, so there's not going to be too much changes. But this is a genuinely uh, compelling, I find, uh, topic of thought. You know, how can Batman save the day without employing violence? And is her way of pacifism uh, ideal? Well, apparently it's not, because her way of pacifism eventually led to a story in, uh, at the end of War Games where she was so pacifist, she actually let uh, Stephanie Brown, one of his former partners, one of his former Robins, die on the operating table just to prove that his way is wrong. 
He can't employ other people into his way of violence. He can't, you know, use violence to save the day. And to prove that, she let a teenage, uh, teenage mother die on the operating table. So ultimately, Batman's morality is superior because he would never do that. It's an interesting dichotomy in how that kind of conversation is, is resolved. Um, moving on to uh, everyone's favorite uh, supporting character, Orpheus. Who remembers Orpheus? Yeah, all right. Eventually. Orpheus, Gavin King was first uh, appeared, and there was a miniseries of Orpheus Rising, and this was a genuine attempt to uh, introduce like, the conversation of diversity in Gotham City. There is a conversation both in the comic book and to Batman's face about who is really um, capable of protecting the people of Gotham City, and who do they even know that they are protecting? Uh, there's genuine conversations between the two characters because Orpheus kind of comes out of nowhere, but he's like, I'm trained, I'm a martial artist, I'm a detective, I'm an athlete, and why do you, Batgirl and Robin and, and you, are, why are they suitable to protect Gotham and I'm not? Uh, Batman says, I don't play favorites, there are other heroes of color, you know, this is not an issue for Gotham City, and Orpheus says, there's not enough and one person can't represent everybody, which is a very metatextual line in the conversation of superhero comics and superhero genre. You know, Orpheus doesn't represent everybody. Uh, even the people he, that he protects in the lower end of Gotham City, in the area called the Hill, they question his his relation to his black identity. You know, oh, you're probably just some college boy. What do you know about us? So there's a lot of like kind of intersectional identity going on in the this miniseries. So it even gets to Batman. He begins to question who is he actually trying to protect? Does he even relate to the people he's trying to protect? He genuinely wants to, but can he relate to them? And not just in a basic superhero secret identity kind of way, but in a in a, in a day-by-day life way. And he actually asked uh, Dick Grayson, you know, what do I represent to non-criminals? Um, Orpheus was around for a couple of years. He didn't necessarily connect with the other heroes. Um, he tries to meet Nightwing in this, in this issue, and Nightwing kind of blows him off. And he's like, sorry, I'm not, I was on your turf, which is interesting. Batman eventually used him to help uh, control all the gangs in Gotham City, saying, if you pretend to be a gang leader and report back to me, then we'll control all the gangs. Which is a little unfortunate. Um... <laughs> And he basically ends up uh, getting fridged uh, pretty quickly, um, the, uh, just, just, just as, a, as a ploy by Black Mask. And this was in 2005. I don't believe we've ever heard from him again. Uh, let's move on to a lot more popular character, Renee Montoya, which was uh, uh, brought up earlier. Um, she was first introduced right before she introduced in the animated series uh, in the early 90s. She was a young Latina uh, police officer. She was uh, fierce. She was courageous. She was, she was eventually promoted to detective. She was usually seen with Harvey Bullock and Christmas Allen. And in 2003, uh, the story Half a Life, written by Greg Rucka, came about where she was outed as a lesbian. So we see a lot of things happen the, uh, the moment this happens. Uh, her captain, Maggie Sawyer, who's also a gay cop, tries to give her advice, tries to tell her, you know, you only get a chance to do this once. Let me, let me guide you through this. And she says, you were not the same. You know, you don't have immigrant parents. Uh, you don't, you know, you're not adhering to the Catholic faith. People aren't saying that you're going to hell. We're, we don't have the same experiences just because we're both gay. She experiences harassment in the workforce. Uh, her own brother is saying, you're being selfish because you're going to hurt our parents being out as a lesbian. So th- these are a lot of stories that you're just not seeing or haven't seen up to this point uh, in a Batman comic book, a Batman adjacent comic book. Um, even even people that she's uh, arrested in the past, like former uh, drug dealers and rapists, are threatening her, threatening her girlfriend once once they once she's she's been outed. And it's eventually revealed that like Two Face was the one to out her. He found some dirt on her, and this is all some sort of bizarre ploy to get her to fall in love with him because she showed him kindness uh, 
ever since, I think, believe No Man's Land between then and now. Um, so he's like, well, I can, you know, even though you're gay, I, I can still have you fall in love with me, which is, um, you know, um, a fight ensues, uh, on superior fight, although it's between two relatively normal people. Batman shows up and he gets a gun away from them. And she says, why didn't you let me finish the job? He says, you would have killed him. That would have been unacceptable. You're welcome. Any comic book where Batman is their difference is sort of, uh, uh, watered down because the story ends when Batman saves the day. At least that's how it appears. Uh, finally ending with uh, the best character in DC Comics. Um, but before we get to that, uh, we see how she confesses to her parents about her gay identity. And the story doesn't necessarily end well for her, although she does end up in the arms of her girlfriend, Daria. So getting back to the best character in DC Comics, um, Cassandra Kane. See, I was, I was eager to get to that. Uh, this is the, the first Batgirl in about 20 years. Um, probably longer than that. Uh, uh, canonically, the... Uh, third, maybe fourth, Batgirl. Uh, one of the best fighters in uh, Batman comics, one of the best fighters in DC comics. She can read body language, so she can kind of tell who people are going, going to do before they do anything. Uh, she also is illiterate. She doesn't know how to speak. She doesn't, doesn't know how to read. And we see how that provides a lot of uh, communicative differences. She is unable to relate to people, and people are unable to relate to her. She's unable to uh, kind of like uh, follow instruction, uh, and, and we see people, even people that she loves, get frustrated with her, which is kind of the experience of, you know, uh, conflict between the abled and the disabled. Uh, she doesn't really relate to anybody until she comes a cropper of Lady Shiva, seen earlier. And this is where the series begins to kind of investigate the kind of person that she is. Through fighting with Shiva, she feels this, this sense of uh, connection because she expresses herself through action and fighting. So we learn more about her past. We learned that like, even though she was abused as a child, she was trained to be an assassin, basically a child soldier, she was brought up by David Kane, who did show her affection. How does that compare to Batman and Oracle? Are they training her to be a child soldier? Do they have her best interests in mind? Do they even agree on how to properly raise her? And while all this is going on, she does uh, develop relationships with other heroes. She becomes friends with Stephanie Brown, Tim Drake, Dick Grayson. She's a pretty well-realized, well-rounded character that is different. She was the first... Batgirl to sustain her ongoing series for 73 issues from 2000 to 2006. And uh, as the charts show, she actually outsold uh, Robin's series for the first three years of her run. It was, um, it was a pretty, um, pretty momentous uh, thing for the Batman comics to have happened, for a female character to kind of outsell in the, in the early 2000s. Uh, so eventually DC decided that let's make her a villain. Um, let's make her a villain for Tim Drake and the writer, Adam Beecham, said that was his, actually his straight-up mandate. Uh, all he was told to do was, you have to make Cassandra Cain Tim Drake's villain. So she's a lot more sexualized. She's, she's um, radically violent. She, she's a murderer. Everything, you know, she's also weirdly literate. She can read like ancient Navajo languages or whatever with no explanation. Pretty much there's no reason why she should be this way, this drastically, but that was a mandate given by the editors. Um, James Lamb wrote that uh, culturally authentic minority superiors do not and cannot exist. The superhero concept's narrow simplicity cannot possibly render human difference with sus substance or nuance. The genre requires exalted whiteness to operate and promotes white male power fantasy for militaristic hegemonic ends. So where does that exactly does that leave us? I didn't mention every character in this presentation. We have Batwoman, Duke Thomas, Night Runner, uh, Bluebird. Some of these are long-lasting than others. Some of these haven't been seen in a while. Some of these are kind of missing in action. Um, but I'm not here to necessarily depress anybody. I'm not here to suggest that 
at the end of the day, Batman comics are for, you know, greedy white boys and, and Gamergate and all that kind of stuff. I'm trying here to demonstrate the, the difficulty that diversity is and the kind of strides that have been made throughout the years. I mean, there were a lot of really great stories with these diverse characters. And you saw in instances like Rene Montoya, Cassandra Kane, and Orpheus, they actually impacted the characters, impacted the readers, and impacted Batman himself. So I'll end with uh, the ultimate cheese card and quoting MLK. The inevitable counter-revolution that succeeds every period of progress is taking place. Failure to understand this as a normal process of development, some people are falling into unjustified pessimism and despair. Focusing on the ultimate goal and discovering it is distant, they declare that no progress is at all made. A final victory is an accumulation of many short-term encounters. To lightly dismiss a success because it does not usher in a complete order of justice is to fail to comprehend the process of achieving full victory. It underestimates the value of confrontation and dissolves the confidence born of a partial victory by which new efforts are powered. Thank you. Okay, hi, I'm Carolyn Coca, and what I'm talking about today is actually a chapter in this book, which I just got a few days ago. I thought I could get feedback here and this would come out later. Uh, but it was fast. So it's called Politics in Gotham, the Batman Universe and Political Thought. So I'll pass it around so you can see what all the other chapters are, if this is the kind of thing you're interested in. So I'm going to talk about the Batgirls. Uh, Betty, Barbara, Cassandra, Stephanie, and Nyssa. And how each one is the product of the successes and limits of the feminist movements at the time of her production, the intent of creators at a profit-oriented company mindful of both feminist ideas and backlash to them, and the varying receptions and pushback by readers. Because as these variables change, so do the portrayals of the Batgirls, and so do the politics of gender and power in Gotham. So Betty Kane and her Aunt Kathy, the first Batgirl and Batwoman, were created by Bill Finger, Sheldon Maldoff, in the wake of uh, psychiatrist Frederick Wortham's allegations of homoerotic undertones mm -hmm. between Batman and Robin and the adoption of the comics code that required respect for parents, the moral code, and the sanctity of marriage. All of Betty's appearances featured Batman, Batwoman, Robin, and Batgirl as a kind of family unit headed by Batman with the younger couple obeying the older couple. Betty embodies the ideals of feminism's first wave when, from roughly 1848 to 1920, U.S. feminists pushed for equal opportunities for women and men, but many of them felt that women and men were different, and that white, middle-class, heterosexual womanhood was both the norm and the goal. So, white, blonde, heterosexual Betty swings into action in April of 1961. Her costume positions her as a female version of Robin, but instead of a uh, utility belt, she has a crime compact <laughs> with lipstick, perfume, and hairspray. Batman is opposed to her joining the team, and Batwoman submits to his authority. Betty's first story shows her as capable, but limited by her girlhood. She finds the villains, but she gets captured. After being rescued, she joins the fight and asks, how am I doing, Robin? He answers, not bad for a girl. Mm, she seems to hear this as a compliment. And her subsequent appearances follow a very similar pattern, like when she saves the day by asking aliens if she can put on her lipstick. Uh, one replies, quote, Ha-ha, a female is the same in any world. When facing a problem, she always resorts to powdering her nose or putting on fresh lipstick. So she opens her lipstick, and it has trick wires in it that encircle and capture them. The writer and artist also consistently show her overestimating her abilities and being more interested in romance with Robin than anything else. 
But Batgirl and Batwoman disappear when new editor Julia Schwartz just didn't like them. And the next Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, would share some similarities to Betty and her first wave roots, but would cautiously embrace second wave feminism as well. Uh, Barbara debuted first on the Batman TV show and then in comics in January 1967. Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. She's white, professional, middle class, capable and attractive, a face of second wave feminism for young women to look up to and for older men to look at. From the mid-60s, these second-wave feminists pushed for equal opportunities and critiqued the first wave's acceptance of different and unequal gender roles. But like the first wave, it still tended to focus more on white, middle-class, non-queer concerns. And its many achievements were circumscribed by cultural expectations of gender. So Barbara makes her Batgirl costume to surprise her father, uh, Jim Gordon, at a masquerade ball. But on the way, she sees Bruce Wayne being kidnapped. She fights Killer Moth and loses, and Batman and Robin discourage her, saying, quote, we can't worry ourselves about a girl. She rescues them, though, and she decides to continue on as Batgirl because she likes the excitement, she has the skills, and she wants to do good. Unlike Betty, Barbara is older, not a girl, but a librarian with a PhD and a brown belt in judo, and with no romantic interest in Robin, at first, and she does not automatically defer to male opinions. Later, she'll be a congresswoman, and this, along with her degree, show that she's quite exceptional for the 60s, 70s, 80s, and frankly, even today. There are similarities between Barbara and Betty, though, reflecting dominant gender norms and pushback against feminism. Barbara's resourcefulness, like Betty's, is continuously grounded in her feminized profession as a librarian. She is both called and calls herself a girl. She carries a purse. Barbara, too, will come to love her Robin. Many comics center, many of both of their comics centered fashion and appearance. Barbara sews her first costume herself. And as you've already heard at least twice in the last couple hours, she looks into her compact as Batman and Robin uh, call her for help. She requires rescue, but she also helps catch the criminal. And both Betty and Barbara's stories don't usually pass the Bechdel test. In the 80s, different authors wrote her as still fighting crime, but also fighting insecurities. Like when she tells Supergirl, I'm nothing. I don't think I was ever cut out for playing hero. This is not unheard of with male characters, but insecurity is a repeated trope for female characters in a way that undercuts their power. Barbara's last classic Batgirl stories were written by Barbara Randall Kiesel, the first woman to write her in 21 years. She was told to write a sympathetic story because Barbara's next appearance in The Killing Joke would be tragic. It was. The Joker shoots Barbara, paralyzing her legs, then assaults her and take picture, takes pictures of her in various states of undress while she cries. That story is centered on Batman and Jim Gordon dealing with it. This prompted future Barbara Gordon writer Gail Simone to create the Women in Refrigerators list of stories where female characters were victims of violence solely to show that violence's effect on male characters. As you know, The Killing Joke was a huge commercial success. But for Barbara, the story was a low point. And... It would also provide the springboard for her new alter ego and for the creation of new Batgirls. Kim Yale and John Ostrander forged a new identity for Barbara in 1989, Oracle, who would use her exceptional intelligence, memory, and facility with information sciences to be a new kind of superhero using a wheelchair. And she would come to act as mentor to new young female characters, Cassandra and Stephanie, and later Nyssa. These characters now engage with third-wave feminism, which was forged in opposition to the new right and the Christian right in the 1980s and 90s. It, too, centers equality and liberation, but is more intersectional than the first and second waves, more sensitive to how different vectors of discrimination combine in ways that disempower some people more than others. It also tries to reposition girlhood as empowering. 
So Barbara and Cassandra as living with disabilities, Cassandra and Nissa as young women of color, Stephanie and Nissa's non-middle-class backgrounds all allow for explorations of third-wave feminist ideals as well as the limits of celebrating femaleness within a dominant culture that still tends to devalue it. So Barbara was Oracle for over 20 years, mostly in the Birds of Prey title, about half of those issues written by Chuck Dixon, half by Gail Simone with various artists. Dixon would fight against making a cheesecake book, like much of the bad girl art that was around at that time, and Simone would fight editorial pressure to have romantic subplots for Barbara. Mm. Barbara as Oracle is not isolated or self-pitying, as stereotypes of people with disabilities would have us expect. Batman initially doubts her, but we see that she's independent, brilliant, and a team leader. Simone in particular surrounds her with superhero women in ways that Barbara as Batgirl and Betty as Batgirl never were. Barbara is quite privileged, though. She has a PhD and a law degree and plenty of money. She's very strong from the waist up. She's heterosexual and has an active romantic life. Artist Ed Bennis, during Simone's run, drew her in a more sexualized way. On the one hand, that's yet another male artist objectifying a female character, but on the other, it subverts a stereotype of people with disabilities as being asexual or undesirable. Her portrayal also subverts the stereotype that people with disabilities can't be effective caregivers or mentors, and these are the relationships that Barbara has with the younger Batgirls. Cassandra Kane's representation as a young and extremely capable woman of color with disabilities and without constant romantic attachment to a male character was probably unthinkable to comics creators in the 60s and 70s when Betty and Barbara were written as white and middle class and bounded by their concerns about makeup and fashion and hetero romance. Introduced in 1999 by Kelly Puckett, Damian Scott, and Jordan Garfinkel, Cassandra was brought up to be an assassin, like her parents, David Kane and Lady Shiva. Kane taught her to read people's body language so she could defeat them. She kills a man. She reads how awful that death was for him. She runs away to Gotham. She does errands for Oracle. And she stands in between Jim Gordon and her father's gun, speaking her first word, stop. She becomes Oracle's ward and trains to be the new Batgirl. Her costume has a much different silhouette from Betty's and Barbara's. There's no attempt to feminize the outfit with a skirt or delicate boots or flowing hair or a purse or lipstick. The all-black costume's mouth is sewn shut, conveying herself as well as her difficulties with speech. She has a form of dyslexia that makes reading difficult as well. Barbara helps her with this, and she later takes ESL classes too. However, as arguably the world's greatest fighter, Cassandra embodies the stereotype of Asian female characters being expert martial artists. Her silence can also be read as representing a stereotype of Asian women as quiet and submissive. Her disability being altered by a telepath in a way that lessens her fighting skills means Batman makes her prove herself to him. And when she's later written as a villain, she's basically like the old Asian female dragon lady stereotype. If Barbara's paralysis was written to showcase her father and Batman's character development, Cassandra's villainy was the same for Robin, Tim Drake. Cassandra considers... Uh, Bat Barbara, excuse me, to be like a mother to her, and she is legally adopted by Bruce Wayne, but then he dies. Hmm. So after 10 years as Batgirl, Cassandra gives the mantle to her friend Stephanie Brown. She helps train Stephanie, and in turn, Stephanie helps her with her reading. Stephanie's background engages with third-wave feminist push to reach beyond middle-class professional concerns and to empower survivors of domestic abuse. 
Stephanie's father is a villain and in jail and abusive to her mother who struggles with depression and drug addiction, and a friend of his attempted to rape Stephanie when she was young. Stephanie and her mother don't live with the class comforts of Betty or Barbara, but she pushes through her anger about these things with a resolve to do good, beginning in 1999 as Spoiler by Chuck Dixon and Tim Lyle. She dates Robin on and off without knowing his real identity and is supported by him when she's pregnant and has the baby adopted. She did, though, tend to be positioned as the girlfriend, like Betty with her Robin, and to have her skills doubted and checked by Batman, like Betty and Barbara and Cassandra <laughs> before her. Then she herself becomes Robin, very briefly, in 2004. Like Betty, she overestimates her abilities. Like Barbara, she's fridged, and she dies horribly. Fridging female characters, just like having them overestimate their abilities, just like having them mostly just be the girlfriend, just like having them have to prove themselves to a man, are all types of backlash against a push for equality. Now, following fan outrage, which one assumes was used as some proxy for marketability, Stephanie was brought back, first as spoiler in 2007 and then as Batgirl in 2009, written by Brian Q. Miller, drawn initially by Lee Garbett and Trevor Stott. God, excuse me. This Stephanie, though, is the center of her own story. As a Batgirl, a friend, a student, a daughter, an older sister figure, and a mentee. Like Cassandra, Stephanie's relationship with Barbara is an integral part of her world. Barbara gives Stephanie a new purple and black costume with some tech in it so she can communicate with her from behind her computer. And these two form a trio when the tech-savvy wheelchair-using Wendy joins the team. Here, Barbara is basically mentoring two younger versions of herself, a new Batgirl and a new Oracle. So Barbara no longer has to represent all women, as she did in the 60s, or even all women with disabilities, as she did in the 90s. However, most of Stephanie's stories feature almost entirely white and non-queer casts, so they don't engage with third-wave feminism's emphasis on intersectionality in terms of race or sex sexuality. But... Her and Wendy and Barbara's portrayals here showcase the feminist notions that young women from difficult backgrounds can be the heroes of their own lives, as well as others, and that older women with disabilities can serve valuable roles as mentors. Still in a mentoring role in the Batman Beyond comic, 40 years in the future, Barbara is an older, white-haired, non-disabled Commissioner Gordon. She works with Batman Terry McGinnis, and in a 2013 story by Scott Peterson and Annie Wu, encounters a young woman of color fighting crime as Batgirl. This Batgirl criticizes Barbara for ignoring her impoverished community, and together they take down a company that is poisoning local food. Barbara figures out her identity. She's Nyssa, 15 years old, with brown skin and black hair. Nyssa reappears in 2017, fighting drug dealers and still feeling that Barbara has not done enough for Gotham's poor and against indifferent politicians and corrupt cops. She's not silent like Cassandra, not bubbly like Stephanie, not boy-crazy like Betty, and she has far fewer resources than them. And this opens up new possibilities for exploring third-wave feminist concerns, but her small number of appearances can only really tease at the potential of a young, brown, financially struggling Batgirl working with an older Barbara Gordon. In 2011, DC Comics rebooted their superhero universe. A younger Barbara was cured of her paralysis and is a physically slighter, less experienced college student Batgirl, like in Batman the Animated Series and the Batgirl Year One comic. Stephanie is spoiler, again, initially underestimated and mistrusted by the Bat family and in love with Robin. Cassandra is orphan, again, deadly and mostly silent. 
So none of their previous character development, nor the bonds of family and mentorship between these three are evident. De-aging these characters may make them appear as less threatening to gender norms, and it certainly undercuts the greater feminist potential of having diverse female heroes working together, but it can also subvert the status quo by demonstrating strength and leadership through young female bodies. So these new versions of the characters, just like all of the Batgirls since 1961, are doing both simultaneously, as feminist ideas about equality and equity are embraced to some extent and fought to some extent, embraced by those calling for increased diversity in a medium and genre in which about 90% of creators and characters are male, and fought by others in a vocal backlash against any kind of change to this quite lopsided proportion. So these characters are female and powerful, a combination that is still as numerically rare in fiction as it is in company boardrooms and the halls of Congress. And that is why they are enmeshed in struggles over the importance of more equitable and authentic representation in fiction, as well as real-life, economic, political, and social and cultural institutions. Thank you. Questions for our presenters? Okay. It seems to me that uh, this uh, strong female character, uh, that's a rule of but they challenge the status quo of the patriarchal society. They not only, but really uh, often they have somehow to be something like an anti hero or a villain or something, they have some anti hero characteristics. Like, uh, uh, like Cassandra Keane or like um, yeah, Cassandra Keane or uh, uh, Gotham uh, mm -hmm. Barbara mm -hmm. here. Mm, what do you think about that? So, mm, I think this, the superhero role is to protect society, but a female superhero that protects a patriarchal society would be, of course, uh, negative. So, to destroy this kind of society, is had to be somehow a villain, an anti hero. About more, uh, less than a I'll have two. Um, I, I think that, yes, by their very existence, female superheroes challenge norms. And just by the fact that I just said female superheroes should tell you something. Because whenever someone means male superhero, they just say superhero. So that I have to use that qualifier tells you that it's not what we're expecting, right? That it's a challenge and that it's a subversion. And that's threatening to some people. I think that um, when female characters are written as villains or as antiheroes, in some ways it's seen as more fun and more comfortable because very often they get quite sexualized. And so that puts a woman into more of an objectified role where her power is her sexuality rather than a challenge of norms and a challenge of, of patriarchy. So, uh, you know, making Cassandra a villain, having um, Barbara, Barbara number one, um, be a villain, you know, that did increase their sexualization. So I do think that tends to be part of it. I could go on at length, but I won't. I'll say real quickly. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think there are some instances where a male career, and it's during a male career, not often, but like enough, uh, might have an idea for just like, you know, this is a, it'll be, this will be an interesting character. 
like Shiva, you know, was never a saint, but she was never as vicious as she became pretty quickly. So I think that there are some instances of genuine uh, creativity trying to get in there that is pretty quickly slipstreams into bad stereotypes. Um, you know, uh, some th- some characters are created with good faith, but uh, society is what it is, and people are never free or excised from the society. People, people's sensibilities and people's uh, likes and dislikes are kind of formed by the society that they come and come into. So it's um, it, it's hard to find a character created who's completely free of that for a long period of time, because it's hard to kind of get out of the pool of common thinking, especially in fiction. I would just add that I came to um, work in popular culture from a background of studying the great romantics and you know the traditional gothic and all of that stuff. And there's a scene in Frankenstein where um, the creator is supposed to make a mate for the creature, and he's almost finished with the female creature, and he basically rips it to pieces and says she would be 10,000 times worse <laughs> than the original because she's female. And I think that that core remains in all of this. Like, there's just that strain of that traditional Gothic uh, sensibility that just runs through science fiction and through other genre fiction that we just never, just never escape. Um, so, with all that stuff about Barbara's characterization, yeah. how do you feel, regardless of what the show is going to do? But how do you feel uh, her story would end? Um, I feel that she probably has to die. Like, I feel like there's no other end for her. I mean, I, I, I mean, we have two more episodes, so next Thursday and the Thursday after, we'll find out. But that's my prediction that she'll die. And, like, do you feel that that's, like, pretend that you're writing the character based on everything that, like, you've studied so far. Like, would do you feel that that's, like, her inevitable conclusion? Yes. Okay. Yes. The Gothic will punish her. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's why I put that up there. What happened with that? <laughs> Do you think it's just sexism, or was the girl audience not enough? Well, I think that the, you know, what you're seeing here about them being sort of younger and slimmer, I mean, I, I made a, a quick comment about how maybe that makes them more threatening. It, that was not actually my idea. It was Gail Simone who told me that that was the editorial reason for for this happening, that you were de-aging Batman, but you weren't necessarily making him less fierce or good at crime fighting or whatever, but that there seemed to be, there were conversations that, um, you know, the young, the female characters would feel less threatening to the traditional local comic shop buying public and so that was what was going on there. And, you know, um, the people who were on the Batgirl Burnside run, um, Cameron Stewart in particular, and uh, Brendan Fletcher, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the two of them, it was sort of a condition of them being on the book that they got to redesign the costume. And um, 
that, you know, that got such a huge amount of attention and clearly brought more people to conventions and to comics. But I think what you're basically seeing is what social scientists would call reversion to the mean, which is that, okay, this was an experiment, that's nice, we've got them now, but let's go back to what we're more comfortable with. And, you know, you can see here it says leather jacket, not spandex. It tells you very specifically this is how this should be drawn. And that's not, that picture isn't really the best indication, but there certainly are new Batgirl comics that have that very rounded, you know, not by the laws of physics kinds of, of <laughs> So I think you have the, the same people are, who are sort of the administrative production people are the same people that they were before. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, I just want to say that I, I heard my friends Ken Yale and John Ostrander get a shout out for the work on Oracle. I want to make sure my friend Alex Simmons gets a shout out yeah. for, uh, for uh, Orpheus. Thank you, Orpheus. <laughs> you Oracle, and I could, yeah, Alex Simmons uh, is a black writer who, when I was investigating him, the only thing I saw him that do, I mean, he probably did other stuff, but was Archie, uh, interestingly yeah. enough. Uh, Dwayne Turner, I know, has worked on other stuff, but like, yeah, I thought that they were kind of like uh, lightning in a bottle in terms of like, you know, careers that kind of come and go in terms of bat comics. Yeah, I, I think they pretty much just yanked Orpheus away. They said, okay, let's, let's try this. My sense was they You wonder why. All right. Thank you so much. Well, a theme during this conference was mansplaining, and I'll explain, and hegemonic masculinity, which isn't so that popped up a lot because, you know, Batman represents hegemonic masculinity and potentially in a, in a certain respect toxic masculinity because I did ask Don at one point, do you, do you think Batman exhibits toxic masculinity and he gave me a side eye. You know he does. So, you know how Donovan does that. With the mansplaining thing, I you know, we walk into this room and I felt like the majority were white males in the in the whole room. A couple minorities that were not white females. And so every time something happened where, you know, which happened to like the keynote speaker said something to her. It was like, what about Superman? I thought, oh no, there you go. And my two compatriots, if they ever said something, you know, under their breath or like talking about something, I would say stop mansplaining. So that was my thing that I would keep them from doing and told them not to do. But it, it was a bit of a running joke because they're pretty good about it. Between the two of them, I would say that Josh is worse mansplainer because he just has and it's it's not necessarily his fault but it's just that he has so much comic knowledge because he reads so much that like you'll say something and then he'll just prattle on and on about it and you're like oh oh no it's happened again i was josh blamed so that should i should get that trending josh blamed after that uh i was really getting tired i have to say we went over to the oh we did miss one um which I'll get back to this, but, but Trisha Ennis, whom we later ha- hung out with or spent time with, she did The Fridge is Full, Barbara Gordon, Oracle, and Reclaiming Narratives for Female Characters, which is unfortunate because they split, they split, you know, the Barbara Gordon fandom and they put her in another room. Obviously, we were in the Batman Sex and Gender. So the last panel that we went to was Batman Romance and Recovery because that was 
Nancy Northcott, and so I wanted to see that. Uh, there was Batman as Hope for Recovery by Jason Knoll, and then Nancy Northcott did the fusion of comic book motifs and romance novel tropes in the evolving relationship of Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson, and Courtney Bliss did From All-Knowing to Erased Oracle's Representation and Erasure of Disability in Comic Books. So here is Nancy's presentation. The fusion of comic book motifs and romance novel tropes the evolving relationship of Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson. I've been a DC Comics reader since 1962, so I've been a reader and a fan for all of these characters' shared history. I'm also a novelist with three paranormal romances published through Grandson Gordon a historical fantasy coming from Falstaff books in the fall, and several other subgenres of romance in addition to science fiction. So we'll look first at the um, comic book motifs and romance novel tropes. And then I'll map out Barbara and Dick's relationship and discuss how it fits into the three-act structure used in most popular fiction, including romance. Because they have a lengthy history and we have limited time, I'm leaving out a lot. (laughs) So please bear with me on that. I'll focus on the period between the launch of Nightwing in 1996 and the new 52 reboot of 2012. This era is the only stage of their shared history that has a full relationship arc where there remains. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with comic book motifs. I imagine what most of us think of near the top of the list is secret identities. So obviously Barbara and Dick both have secret identities. Then come secret layers, because heroes with secret identities need a place to stash their hero stuff. Then sidekicks, gadgets, Superpowered powered teams and friends, superpowered villains, and temporary or cyclical relationships. So Barbara and Duke's relationship involves secret identities, secret layers, such as the back peg, Dick's various stashes of his stuff if he didn't burn them all down, and um, Barbara's clock tower. They know each other's identities and where their secret stashes are. They've both been sidekicks, kind of sort of to Batman, more Dick than Babs, and they use cool gadgets. They've also worked with other teams such as the Bat Family, the Birds of Prey, and other superhero teams. As Oracle, Barbara uses her computers to help various superheroes. That kept her and Dick in contact, which set up the possibility of a romance. Because they both courted or had relationships with other people, and never got to happily ever after in main continuity, theirs is also a temporary or cyclical romance. So with that in mind, let's look at romance novel tropes. Polls by Romance Writers of America and the website allthekissing.com <laughs> about favorite romance tropes. The top ones included friends to lovers, soulmate fate, second chance at love, secret marriage or romance, first love, reunited lovers, Love Triangle, Enemies to Lovers, Opposites Attract, and Fake Romance. As you can see, there are quite a lot of them. And the genre also includes Marriage of Convenience, Love on the Run, Beauty on the Beast, and the Beast, and Unrequited Love. So with that background in mind, um, the main ones that apply over the course of Barbara and Dick's history are Friends to Lovers. There are some hints at Second Chance at Love, but not definite, and then a little bit of unrequited love thrown in. We'll start with Batman Family, which began in 1975. 
This was the first time Robin and Batgirl worked together apart from Batman consistently. They didn't always work as a team, but they frequently did. In the first issue, Babs is serving in Congress and Dick is her intern. There are several indications during this period that Dick is interested in Babs, but she shrugs that off because of the age difference. She's at least 25 and he's a college freshman. So here it's kind of unrequited love without the resolution you would get in an actual romance novel. During this time, they figure out each other's secret identities. The clip on the left is from issue number 13 of Batman Family, September 1977. And Dick explains that he loves Babs as a friend, as a partner, as a sister. He might love her for more, but she's asleep. However, that got retconned away mm -hmm. the panel on the right, Nightwing Annual Number 2, 2007, where she's facing the other way and not really asleep. And she said that she pretended to be asleep because she didn't know what to do about where he was going with this. And none of the reasons that she cited in that conversation in the Nightwing Annual had anything to do with the age difference. So they sort of retconned the age difference away by that time. Batman Family ended with issue number 20 in 1978. In 1980, Dick joined the New Teen Titans as their leader, and in 1984, he shed his Robin identity and became Nightwings. Meanwhile, as we discussed earlier today, DC didn't seem to really have anything to do with Barbara. She retired in 1988's Batgirl Special Number 1, and that same year, in the much-discussed graphic novel The Killing Joke, the Joker shot her. The injury left her paraplegic, but she learned to fight and shaped herself into the information guru and uber computer geek Oracle. And that brings us up to 1996, which was the launch of Nightwing. That same year, the first of several Birds of Prey miniseries appeared, with the ongoing title launching in 1999. It featured Babs' Oracle, working with Dinah Lance, the Black Canary, and then there were some other heroes who kind of rotated in and out of the roster. Dick and Babs appeared to be much closer in age than they had been before. Having both of these titles running set the stage for exploring that attraction that had always been hovering in the background, and in turn led to their romance. At this point, their interaction begins sliding into the three-act structure of a friends to lovers romance. Act one establishes the ordinary world and kicks off the inciting incident, which kind of moves in the direction of romance. Things generally don't go well until the first turning point, which is the end of Act One. And that's when the lovers kind of admit that they're interested in maybe kind of sort of, but they don't really move forward with that at that point. In the Nightwing book in 1997, Fabs and Dick did some flirting and teasing and worked together on some of these cases. Her skills as Oracle kept them in touch, this is their ordinary world and relationship. You can see that she says, I know you're there, I can hear you snoring. <laughs> that's what you say to your friend. When, well, you might say that to your friend. So that kind of establishes where they are at this point. They stayed on friendly footing with the possibility of more being raised in Nightwing number 16, January 98. Nick suggests that they could get together, and she says no because of the wheelchair. And he replies that she knows better than that. She still says no, and there's no resolution, but as you can see, they both leave the conversation smiling. And there on the left is that bit, we had some time, 
well. Now, were those romantic poems? Were those friend poems? Were those kickback bag butt poems? We were rolling up. So you could read anything you wanted into that there. So this is a classic friends to lovers conflict. A fear of taking that next step because if it doesn't work out, we'll spoil the friendship. It also establishes Barbara's conflict for uncertainty about being in the wheelchair and fear of relying on the shared past that she had to leave behind. They continue to work together and occasionally flirt. And then we get Birds of Prey number eight. And we learned then that she and Dick went to a circus together at some unspecified earlier time and something changed. He asked her what she most missed about being a hero and she said it was that moment before the leap into space when the jump line was loose in her hands. And he told her he could give her that and took her up to her his childhood home, the trapeze. And as you can see on the right, that's the last panel of that sequence, page of that sequence. And maybe they kissed, maybe they didn't. You can read that whatever way you want. But after this, Dick says that he wants to start seeing each other. And she says, do you know why I don't have handles on my chair? I don't like to be pushed. So that, that kind of leaves that there. But this is the first turning point. Because it's a kiss. It's kind of a, yeah, we're romantically interested in each other. And she didn't say no. She said, don't push me. And that's not quite the same thing. So. Then the, that, so that brings us to the start of the second act. Things go well, the lovers get closer. Then we brought the action rises to the second turning point, which is the midpoint of the story. And at that point, the lovers commit to the relationship. Then problems and conflicts arise and deepen, things go downhill, and the second act ends with the third turning point, where all seems lost. So Babs and Dick drift along in the friend zone, until Nightwing number 38. He's injured, Babs helps him, and they discuss their relationship, as seen here. She said she had to leave a lot of things behind, and he says, including me, and she says, including you. Now, there again, we don't know exactly what they were leaving behind. It could be a second chance at love thing, if they had a relationship before, or it could just be there was the potential and we didn't act on it. So you can kind of read that whichever way you want. They do end up kissing in this story, but the kiss leads nowhere. Dick is sort of seeing his landlady, and Babs was emailing back and forth with Ted Corey the Blue Beetle. So in a Friends to Lovers romance novel, the friends sometimes step out of the friend zone and then retreat into it again. Although they usually do so with a bit more forward progress than we saw here. Um, they are not series running over multi-year periods in at least two different books written by multiple different authors. So you, there doesn't need to be a steady progression, especially in a superhero romance with romantic elements, as opposed to a romance book story. So in Nightwing 55, whoops, yes, here we go. In Nightwing 55 and 56, they have some tender moments and discuss their history. And in number 57, as seen here, Babs writes Dick a note and says she loves him, which we learned when the bad guys who captured him uh, search his suit. And that's why Dick's upside down. Um, this is the second turning point with the characters committed to each other, because he was always all in for a romance. She was the one who was hesitating, and now she's not. So this is the midpoint of their romantic arc. However, cracks appear in the relationship, starting with Nightwing number 75 in 2003. 
with Babs worrying that Dick is fixated too much on the task they shared that she had to leave behind and that he's doing too much. Their issues are exacerbated when he pursues the new vigilante maybe criminal tarantula. And matters come to a head in Nightwing number 87, January 2004. Babs and Dick are out on a date and tarantula attacks Babs, specifically Babs. She tries to defend herself and tells Dick to stay back, and he either can't or he won't, and it's the last straw. So she breaks up with him, which was Tarantula's plan, we learned in a later panel. So this is the third turning point and the end of Act Two. In a romance we call it the Black Moment, in science fiction it might be called the Death Star has cleared the planet. <laughs> so, you know, there seems to be no hope at this point. But then we move into Act 3, which builds from the black moment to the resolution. The lovers resolve their differences and grow close again, and a proper romantic resolution is either happily ever after or happy for now. So Babs and Dick fall back into a working relationship. We're just going to leave out this whole thing with Tarantula. <laughs> um, he leaves her tender voicemails in Birds of Prey number 76, and Nightwing number 100, which is actually the same voicemail told from their different perspectives. In Birds of Prey number 83, August 05, Babs is injured and afraid she may die. She tells Dinah, I should have told Nightwing, but trails off before she finishes. She does, however, recover, and her teammates throw her a party. <laughs> she and Dick sit and talk. And as the party's breaking up, she tells him there are things she could blurt out if they had some privacy. And he says he'll call her. But that really never did seem to happen. So there was no real follow-up to that encounter. Until Nightwing number 117, April 2006, immediately before the DC Infinite Crisis crossover. He proposes to her and she accepts. He goes off to crisis, gets blasted, and then we get Nightwing Annual Number 2 in 2007, which further explored their relationship. It ended with Dick going off with Bruce and Barbara promising to wait for him, thus kind of rolling happily ever after into kind of happy for now, sort of. And then um, after, after that, the engagement kind of magically disappeared from continuity. Barbara and Dick remained friendly with occasional flirting, but nothing else significant happened. And then we get the New 52 relaunch, which, as we discussed, posited that Babs regained the use of her legs by experimental surgery, and she became Batgirl again in the Batgirl comic book. She and Dick did not interact much in New 52, though a number of scenes demonstrated how much they cared for each other. In Nightwing Annual Number 1, they discussed their relationship and how the timing is always wrong for them. And Dick says, maybe we need to just make it work. And so he asks her to move to Chicago with him. They agree to sleep on it and talk in the morning. But at the last minute, he reconsiders and leaves without talking to her. New 52 was apparently not the marketing success the company hoped to be. In the new continuity, Dick and Babs are close to the same age again and are younger, as we discussed earlier, than they had been in New 52 and before. There were hints of romantic attraction, but the timing again was always wrong. In the summer of Lies Art in Batgirl numbers 14 to 16, October to December 2017, 
flashbacks show the early friendship and actually retcon in kind of the childhood romance. And then they kiss in present time, but Dick backs away because he isn't over his relationship with the Basil. He and Babs agree to be best friends no matter what. And then we get this. Back roll number 25, October 2018. Barbara is burned out and turns to Dick for comfort. So they hold up in the honeymoon suite Bruce and Selena never used. Hopes <laughs> <laughs> the future. That was so funny. And imply that those hopes include each other, even though that they specifically say we can't really put a name to this thing that we share. So at the end of the story, they end up in bed, snuggle down to go to sleep. There was a tender, romantic story that ended on a feel-good note. And then there was this. <laughs> so in Batman number 55, in case anybody in this room didn't see it, in November 2018, Dick was shot in the head by KGB as a part of Bane's plan to break Batman. He's now an amnesiac cabbie who sleeps in his cab when he's not squatting in people's houses. He doesn't remember or want to remember his superhero days or the people in them. He's initially hostile to Batman when she comes to try to help him regain his memory. Um, but in Nightwing number 58, they talk and seem to establish a tentative bridge. So that's the May issue, but it was sold last month. It was a new stands on edge. So a new issue will be it's out Christmas next weekend. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Where they go from here is anybody's guess. There's currently no Dick Babs pairing because he's just seeing the very nice bartender at the bar. But, you know, he's seeing her, so no, no, what that means for Barbara. And there doesn't seem to be much sign of a Dick Babs pairing on the way. So in conclusion, Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson's romance has all the trappings we expect of superhero adventures, but their romantic conflicts fuse the conventions of comic books and romance novels and transcend both genres. So a couple funny things happened in that presentation after Nancy's presentation. Donovan, in his sick Donovan way, said, what about Corey and about three people? One, two, three. Nope. Four people turned to him, hissed, booed, told him to shut up. I said, shut your mouth. And also, I think I'm going to stop, stop. So he was, whew, it was like he was on Themyscira. And he landed, and we all surrounded him and wanted to destroy him. So that was his first and worst mistake. Of course, he was joking, but it was just funny how instantaneous the reaction was. It kind of reminds me of the Harry Potter panel that I took him to, where someone asked if anyone in the audience hadn't read The Cursed Child, and he raised his hand, and then the rest of the panel was directed to him, which was really funny, but he hated me for it. The other thing that happened was during Courtney Bliss's presentation, Oracle's representation, she brings up a quote from Carolyn Coca and says, like, I disagree with Carolyn, something that Carolyn Coca said. And it was really weird and surreal because we're trying to figure out, does she know that Carolyn Coca is currently in the room? Does she know her? But the way it was presented because, you know, who would do that? They'd be like, you know, talking bad about someone to in front of them. Like, you know, this is, I'm going to criticize this person right now. So we really realized that she had no idea she was in the room, but it was an academic paper that she had read. And 
she was just she she had a couple quotes or just one quote and and took issue with it and carolyn was in front of me at this particular panel and she like turned her around and and made a face but it was i mean for me in the audience it was pretty hilarious for carolyn it was probably like a pulling of her collar sort of moment but in the end carolyn even told her you know number one is fine number two we don't disagree and then they they had a, a chat about that but it was just uh it was a really funny moment and a special moment to be a part of that. The fact that, you know, I'm going to talk about someone who's here in this room, but I don't realize that that person is here in the room. Afterwards, there was light refreshments and it was fun because we got to sit around and, and talk with different people and just discuss different areas of fandom. And we came up with a plan maybe to see Shazam on Saturday. That went until, gosh, we kept getting kicked out. Chuck kept coming into different places. We were having the discussion in one of the panel rooms. He's like, okay, you guys can still talk, but go over to the food. Like he did that multiple times. And then we were in the food and he's like, okay, the library's going to close, so please get the food and go. So it was just funny that each time Chuck came over, he would, <laughs> he would basically be kicking us out. So we ended up leaving. And, oh, you know what? I forgot that the ward, uh, Spoiler Kid, Spoiler Kid had to go and he left after Donovan and Carolyn's panel to go and take Spoiler Kid back to his mom. And so it was just Don and I. So Don and I got a ride back with Carolyn to go to the hotel. And, oh, okay. I'm trying to figure out why it was so late. And now I've remembered. So we were talking, we we're moving into the hotel and we're chatting about different things. I can't even remember what we we're chatting about. The one thing I do remember is that Dan Mishkin walks by and Carolyn decides to say, this is your fault, Carolyn. She decides to say, we were just talking about you. And we weren't, we weren't at all. I don't know if Dan said something to provocate this but she said we were just talking about you and I and he said what were you saying and my knee jerk my knee jerk was to say something sarcastic and I was originally going to say that blue devil is a terrible character that was my knee jerk because you know I'm sarcastic that's just what I thought luckily my filter dropped in and I decided that's not a good idea because I don't know this guy and I don't know what his humor is like. So I said that Blue Devil is one of the best characters out there. And then he said he talked about that and then went into Static Shock. And then there was some Star Trek talking. There was some DC talking. There's Dan DiDio. About an hour later, we've just we've finally parted ways from Dan Mishkin. I, I kid you not. It was an hour. I did take a picture. Oh, because we mentioned Shag. And he said, oh, yeah, I know Shag. And Donovan says, yeah, isn't he terrible? And I said, oh, Shag is a dear friend and he loves Blue Devil. And I ended up getting a picture with, with Dan Mishkin and sending it to Shag to, for proof, for proof that I was there. So there was, that was some hijinks as well. So we part ways. Carolyn goes off to bed. Don and I, I'm actually really hungry and I would like some food, even though I don't normally eat at 11 p.m. at night, but it's, it's about that time. So Don and I part ways and say we're going to meet back at 10 in 10 minutes. He would like to go to Coldstone. I'm like, okay. That's connected with Tim Hortons. It's been so long since I've been to a Tim Hortons because it's not in the South, it was there in Buffalo. Because it's a Canadian company, I had an interesting experience when a classmate dumped water on me in a Tim Horton, so I always remember that. So we end up going over there. It says 24 hours on the glass door. It says 
24 hour drive through 24 hour dining area, the door is locked. We see people in there looking around, looking around, trying the door again, seeing if we can get anyone's attention. No. So then I told Don, well, we better go to the drive through window because someone just went to the drive through. So clearly they're using that. So we walk over to the drive through window. And all the while I'm asking Don, have you ever done this before? Have you ever done this? Because I, at one of my hometown banks, I went up to the window just for funsies because I know the people there and like deposited money at the, the window because I thought that was fun. So we're at the drive through window. Don is understandably and unfortunately because this is the the life that we're leading or the era that we're leaving or the age what age era is the same thing the place location that we're we're living in a fallen world people and so because of that don was a step behind me and i knocked on the window and even even me my white girl face was that girl was a little hesitant to open it up and so I said, well, your door is locked. And she said, yes, we're, she said, we're closed, I think. And I said, well, on your door, it says that the dining area is open 24 hours, which, you know, false advertising people. And she said that they were short staffed. And so that's what that is. But you want coffee? And I thought, no, absolutely. I do not want coffee. But, you know, she said, well, if we want to order something, we have to go through here. And she said, yeah. So Don and I walked back to the little sign. I looked at what they had to offer, and he ended up saying, nah, we go over to Wendy's. Wendy's dining area is locked. Now the last resort is McDonald's. And so, yes, we went to McDonald's. We sat in front of a fake fire. I don't know that it was giving off heat. <laughs> and <laughs> ate our foods. I get, Yeah, we talked for like an hour there, too, because Josh, I guess, texted us at one point, and we said that we were at McDonald's. And then he called us and said, where are you? And we said, we're at McDonald's. You're still there? So he came over and we talked a little bit fellowshipping, as I like to say. And then we finished up. We went back to the hotel. I hung out with them for maybe a half an hour or so. It got to be like 1230 and I decided it's probably it's probably time to go. And so luckily the next day I was able to sleep in a bit and yeah, left them. And then, yeah, it was time. It was time to go to bed. I think before I went to bed, I watched the Star Wars Rise of Luke Skywalker. Nope rise of skywalker trailer and then i went to bed and so now on to saturday tonight i'm gonna have myself a real good time i feel alive
have to be there until 10 and we were going to get breakfast over there because they had lots of breakfast items i ended up waking up at i'm trying to think here maybe eight maybe maybe eight and went on my run again this time i went around bgsu and it was light out this time it wasn't raining which was nice and then got all ready And this felt like, I mean, the the load was off after I presented. So I was just ready to enjoy being with my guys and listening to panels. And so we met up and then went over. Opening remarks were at 10.05 and then we got started right away. I went over to, or I guess we all went over to the historical aspects of Batman, the legacy of Batman, Nightfall by Ryan Haas and Rob Myers, and then Bat Signals, the deployment of superhero iconography by U.S. military personnel from Vietnam to the War on Terror by Buddy Avila, uh, which is interesting. That's I feel like that's false advertising. I don't recall him going to the War on Terror. No, I guess that's not true. There was, he did talk about some deployments um, to Iraq and things like that. And then there was the keynote speaker, Batman and Sons Family and Patriarchal Authority by Dr. Jeffrey Brown. And then there was a lunch break, which, again, I don't think we participated in. We probably just took a break and, and sat around and, and chatted. Batman, Robin, and Beyond was at one. The Dark Knight and the Boy Wonder, Does Batman Need a Robin by Joshua Smith, The World's Greatest Detective at the Movies, Recontextualizing and Decontextualizing Batman's Investigative Techniques for or Lack Thereof by Jason Salentis, and a look at the 1966 Batman Test Pilot episode Artifacts and Explore What Features Remained and Changed for the Series by Troy R. Kinunen. And that was interesting because he brought actually the test costumes that Burt Ward and Adam West would have worn for their... Um, yeah, for the pilot and also for their audition and everything. Got to take a picture of that. Uh, then there was Batman and Critical Thought, Batman and Permanent Things, Classical Lenses for Interpreting the Dark Knight by Sean Hadley, Batman versus Do- False Dichotomies, The Ethics of Problem Solving by 
Jonathan Brownlee and Stan Lee's Batman, an examination of Silver Age comic book cross-pollination by Alan Joswiak. And the classical lenses, I, I found that interesting. He looked at Batman and Aristotle's sort of formula for plot and things like that. And I asked him a question about uh, what virtues he felt Batman extolled, specifically Greek and Roman. He said, well, I didn't really think about that, but, you know, American virtues. And then he mentioned something and said, well, you know, that has its origin back. It's not like Americans are just coming up with these virtues. They have origins back to their Greek and Roman ancestors. And he also said that he felt like theological virtues were present in Batman. And so afterwards, I went to talk to him and wanted him to explain that. And his explanation didn't really align with with Christian ideas of what those are, because he used faith, hope, and love, but all three of those are supposed to lead you back to Christ. And so his was like the hope. The hope was that at one point it'll be finished. And I thought, uh, I don't know about that. You know, I mean, that's not exactly it, but I wasn't about to stella splain slash theological slash church splain him so i decided to just be like what i really enjoyed your panel then we had a keynote speaker it was mike barr conversation with the bat writer and he talked about the history of dc comics and publishing and and things like that and some sketchy things that happened over there at dc which was really interesting Batman and Political and Social Theory was at four. Billionaire Superhero as Oxymoron by Ra- Rachel Ramlawi. Ramlawi. The Dark Knight, which her main supposition was that billionaires are not good people, which I would then say, well, no one is a good person, actually. The Dark Knight is Not All Right by Nathan, Nathan Wallace, and which that was also interesting. And then Can Do Dynamism as a Vehicle, inspired by Batman comic books by Andreas Luscher. And he was an architect and he was talking basically about um, do more, basically. Not less is more, but like more is, go- more is good or something like that. And, and the breakdown of panels and things like that. And I asked him a question about like, do you think there are other motifs or not motifs, um, sayings or maxims that could be used? And I brought up Louis Sullivan and his uh, form follows function, and you feel like that could work. He didn't necessarily answer the question, and he said, I didn't, you know, I don't know nothing about Batman, but I'm here to uh, kind of do a fun presentation. So that was interesting. Went to a Batman and Whiteness roundtable. Danny Anderson, Neil Coyle, and Christopher Mav Maverick, which was not what I was expecting. I think that's also true of what Carolyn and Donovan said that it was a bit of a disappointment. The final one was Batman and Structural sur- Supervillains, Patriarchy, Capitalism, Surveillance, and Imperialism in Batman's World. First had Intelligence Gathering, Bats, Surveillance, Bat Cultures, and Rebirths Detective Comics by Sean Bardell. The Emancipation of Women, Batman, Catwoman, and the Cultural Enforcement of the Patriarchal Structure. And Oh yeah, there were four, I forgot. Batman, God of Capitalism, Radical Individualism, and American Mythology Oh, sorry, the one before about the women, Sydney Heifler and then Jen Cardenas was in the one I just mentioned. And then finally, Sean O'Brien did Batman to Batwing, incorporating capitalism, imperialism, and American exceptionalism. 
And I had a couple, Carolyn was trying to edge me out of there because we had plans, but I had a couple questions. One of them, you know, mentioned empathy. And I asked, gosh, what's it going to take to make Batman more of an empathetic character? And that was hard. I mean, her basic answer was like, besides rewriting, you you can't, (laughs) you can only do so much with him, which is actually really interesting. And I wonder if that's true. If Batman is not an empathetic character, why do people flock to him so much? And obviously, not everyone is empathetic. But for people like, you know, me who tries to be empathetic or Donovan, you know, why? What's the appeal about this character if we can't get behind his his actual character? And then with the Batwing to Batman, I asked almost about representation and, and is it going to take a one-to-one where you've got the writer writing about his ex- actual experiences or people traveling to Africa and getting a better sense of this. What's it going to take to change and make more authentic comics? So all of those were very interesting. And then there were, of course, light snacks and more chatting because this was it. This was the end. Afterwards, we decided to go see Shazam and we brought along with us Trisha Ennis, who had done the panel that we unfortunately had missed. And watch Shazam. It was my first time. I think it was Trisha's third time. It was Don's second, Carolyn's first, and Josh's fourth. So, you know, it's mainly for Carolyn and myself. I enjoyed it. I think, well, number one, it was much better than I, I had no expectations, but you know, from all the negative stuff, of course, it always lowers my expectations, but I thought it was a fun film. I don't know if it's definitely not my favorite DC film, but you know, my opinions on things differ from other people. For example, I really like Man of Steel. I actually really like Suicide Squad. So I guess people can't trust me. But so that's it's not my favorite. I definitely like Wonder Woman more. And I feel like I might like Aquaman a bit more, even though that it has weird moments to it. So there you go. So we ended up getting back at around 11 or so and I still I still hadn't eaten and unfortunately I had to do the McDonald's again so basically as I'm recording this whole week I'm trying to purge everything that had happened trying to cleanse the body of the McDonald's so I had McDonald's and and chatted and uh, Carolyn and Josh and Don were there and fellowshipped as I like to say and I guess that was that was mainly it. Yeah, Carolyn went off on her separate way. We all said goodbye. I went to Josh and Don's room and chatted with them for a little bit. And then I knew I needed to get up and, and leave early. So I ended up leaving relatively early from their room as well, said teary goodbyes, and then went off and went to bed. And now on to the final day, which is Sunday. I do bad things for the sake of good times I don't, I don't regret Call me what you will, yeah, I'm in it for the thrill I'm just, I'm just selfish Casualties of love
up early and I what I was going to do is meet the Middletons at their church and worship with them and so I had to leave about 7 seven thirty. went over to Tim Hortons and got some stuff for later in my trip just because I thought when's the last time I'm going to go to Tim or the when's the next time I'm going to go to Tim Hortons traveled it was a rainy day and I thought oh man this is gonna slow me down and it's always gosh the last time when I went to Kevin's wedding Kevin Cushing it was pleasant the day driving over there but on the way back the rain and it just slows you down you can't use cruise control people are erratic and you know you can't drive as fast as you normally would and so I thought this is going to be a really long, and I'm I'm exhausted already, so it's just going to be a really long day. So I get over there, rain, rain, rain. I think, unfortunately, I, I, Mrs. Middleton, I think, may have caught me in a bad mood, but she, I, I just wasn't like super peppy because I was tired and I'm not terribly good in the morning. But um, I was trying really, really hard, and so I think I was just short with my answer, so it wasn't the best Stella that I could have been. She asked if I wanted coffee, and I said no, which was rather forceful. I uh, worshipped with them, which was an interesting experience. Contemporary music, which I'm used to, of course. I've got, you know, my church is, is both. And different liturgical practices. And then it was Celebration Sunday. So celebrating, of course, the church and also looking to church plant again and expand and, and you know, bring the message to more people. So there was also a lunch afterwards. So during the lunch, it was actually more of a serious conversation because I told Alan that I wanted to talk to him about the liturgical practices. So we had a discussion on that. And then I got even deeper in theological discussion, um, which we ended up going back into the sanctuary because it's so loud. They had music and everything. So it's like I was in a club and screaming to him. But just talking about this conflict I sort of have or you know, the, the struggles I have with like faith rubbing up against, you know, my my love of, of pop culture. And I'm not really going to get into it here, I don't think. You know, I think there might be a time and a place for it, but this might not be the show. But we just had a discussion on that and, and um, talked about being a model and, and that hopefully, you know, even this is even though this isn't a Christian podcast and this is about Barbara Gordon, that I'm modeling myself well and, and hopefully for others and you can tell that I'm a Christian, but I don't I don't know. That's I guess for other people. Maybe now you're like, what? So who knows? 
So then I left them. I, I bid adieu. And it was actually nice. It was a pleasant, it, like the sun kind of came out. And I had an okay drive until I got to Virginia. And then it just, it was chaotic. The wind was blowing so hard that whenever I went across a bridge, it was like shifting my car over. The rain was heavy and it was hard to see. I mean, people were insane drivers as well. And I just thought, gosh, I just have to make it through, you know, these couple hours to Virginia. So there were apparently tornado warnings all over, uh, even where I live too. So luckily, I made it. <laughs> and yeah, then just went to bed. I think I did some why well, unpacked, obviously, and then just decompressed a little bit and then and went to sleep. And I had to start that, you know, Monday was insane. I didn't even get a break. Monday, I had all six classes and no break because it was a weird schedule. And so it destroyed my lunch break. And I was singing in chapel. So I had to be on there was no way I could not be so that was my weekend. Overall, I'm glad I did it. I think, you know, there's a point in time where I, I sent in my abstract and I didn't hear anything. And I was just like, well, maybe it's for the best that I did it. Maybe I'm, you know, because that's just one other thing that I'll have to do. And Josh is like, you need to ask, you need. And then he did it for me. So he's one of those, if I'm the nagger, he's the one that like pushes you into situations that he thinks are good for you. But you know, it was worthwhile. And I think, you know, one of my greatest fears in life is that people will realize I'm a fraud. You know, oh, she doesn't know Latin. It's been a lie all along. She doesn't know Batgirl. That's a lie all along. And so I think for the first time answering those questions, I felt confident. I, I knew my stuff. I was able to easily recall information. And I thought, I'm not a fraud. I've been doing this podcast and I know my stuff. And so I'm just really thankful for that. And not in like a pride or egotistical moment, but just like, yeah, this has been worthwhile. And you know, I'm, I'm, I love the character of Barbara Gordon, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I know she's fictional, but I owe a lot to her, and, and I think that that paper and that presentation and the Q&A, I think I was able to, to make up to her, you know, what she has given me. So, so that was the four days, jam-packed. I'm trying to, oh, I forgot to say. You know, I texted Donovan last night, and I said, is there anything that you'd be embarrassed me mentioning on the show and I expected well I expected him maybe to say either no or give me a list of something I didn't expect him to give me a list of things that I had to say and he said what did he say if you didn't mention the embarrassing stuff it'd be a light episode <laughs> so of course he says don't forget us getting to registration, all dressed up and nice, totally soaked. The Oracle and Disability and Comics panel where the woman had no idea Carolyn Coco was staring her in the face. The male trying to mansplain at your Q&A. Yeah, there was a guy that talked about one of the questions. Oh, well, you actually heard it. It was the guy who said, you know, there's no limit to like the number of characters they could use or they're using in no, female characters. They're using in the DC television shows. And then Don's like, oh, there's a limit. So that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, 24 hour cold zone oh yeah i forgot about the peaches because he sent me little peach emojis now i don't know you a lot of you might not know that i thoroughly enjoy the peaches they bring joy to me i think while people are horrified at it and look away i like to point and giggle at it so i was hoping because you know nerdy conference that maybe i'd see a couple peaches i mean 
I don't go everywhere hoping I'll see a peach, but I expect it. I only saw one peach, people. It was really disappointing. One peach, and it was a bald peach. It was a bald, bald peach. So it was really, really sad. So, you know, that was a bit of a letdown, but I, you can't let the whole weekend be pulled down by that. The other thing I forgot to say is that after the presentation and on Saturday, I was a little wild. I was a little wild. And Josh, Josh, I guess when he gets bored, he likes to mess around with me because he'll get the reaction. And so we were doing different things. And um, we talked about touching Don's elbow because <laughs> a couple years ago, some I don't know how it happened, but there's this rumor that you can't feel if someone like touches your elbow. And so I think I was trying to get him to like lick <laughs> on Finn's elbow, but he refused. And I said, okay, well, just touch it. But he refused. But I finally got him to touch his elbow. And the first time he touched it, Don turned around. But then he was able to do it like two more times and Don didn't feel it. I tried to videotape it, but it didn't. But it was basically Josh and I messing around and I was I was losing it. And I think Carolyn said, yeah, you were red in the face. I was crying. Um, so I just get a little wacky. So, you know, apologies. Poor Carolyn, I think, got like uh, a good, a better idea of sort of my true character because I'm usually pretty calm cool and collected when she's around and podcasting i think there's only that one time that i laughed um for a little while when she was on so she got a better sense of of who i, <laughs> I was just remembering in shazam someone made this really weird noise of like a cough sneeze something happened and i turned to her and we both made like wide eyes and then i just I just lost it um, for a couple minutes there in, in Shazam. So those sorts of things. So I do apologize to Carolyn Coca for that. Okay, well, I think that's actually it. I'm sure I'll think about this and like, ah, oh, I should have mentioned blah, blah. But oh, well. Okay, well, remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolloracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backrolloracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well and support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Thanks again to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? A peach is a butt. Oh, she's sweet but a psycho, a little bit psycho. At night she's screaming, I'm on my mind, my mind. Oh, she's hot but a psycho, so left but she's right though. At night she's screaming, I'm on my mind, my mind. She'll make you curse, but she a blessing. She'll rip your shirt, but then a second you'll be coming back, back for second with your play. You just can't help it, no, no You'll play along, let her lead you on You'll be saying no, no Then saying yes, yes, yes Cause you're messing with your head Oh, she's sweet but a psycho A little bit psycho At night she's screaming, I'm on my mind, my mind Oh, she's hot but a psycho So left but she's right though At night she's screaming, I'm on my mind, my mind Yeah, we'll